I step back behind the tank and then I get shot. The bullet hit me in my calf, just went right through my calf. And then the guys, they start screaming. They start screaming like, get up, get up, get up. Cause I'm looking at my leg going, all right, is my leg, uh, is my leg snapped in half? I'm like waiting for the pain to set in. I'm like looking for blood. I'm in some sort of momentary shock because I just got hit. And uh, we're getting fired on from the flanks. ISIS is dumping mortars on us. This is like a suicide mission. The Black Rifle Podcast starts now. So you went to Buds with him. Yeah, yeah. I went to do Buds with and uh, SQT with, yeah, Mr. Ballin. Oh, okay. Does yeah. he does he have his like real name out there? Or is yeah, it yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's John Allen. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. He talk, he talks about it uh, yeah. publicly. Yeah, yeah. He um, when he, I forget I forget exactly how we how he got started. He was like one of the first dudes to like really um get into TikTok. Like when it when it first started, as he started doing storytelling on TikTok, and so he just mm-hmm. went massively viral, moved people over to his uh, YouTube channel, and he just blew up from there. I think Amazon. I think Amazon yeah. bought his podcast Amazon and all did. that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. It's, it's it's awesome. I was yeah, down in um, I was down in California not too long ago, uh, which I tend to stay out of just mm-hmm. in general, just for combination of reasons. And um, <clears throat> I met a guy. Um, I was I was working on a different deal. I met a guy that represented him, and he was like, "Hey, would you guys?" And I was like, "I've never, I'd never even heard of him." Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because like that's definitely not me being a dick whatsoever. I mm-hmm. just don't spend a lot of time on social media which is somewhat weird because considering like what I do and who I do it for, but I just don't because I find it fucking just a a nauseating, like incompetent gaggle of morons most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) But I do like, I love making content. Like I love making content. Post and ghost, as Rogan says, post and ghost. Post and- But then I went down the rabbit hole. Okay, okay. Then I went down the rabbit hole and I was like, this guy's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His his stuff is really, really good. Yeah, yeah. And like, I like how it's diverse, not like, you know, progressive diverse. It's like, Mm. he's got this, these mysteries that he unpacks. And I was just watching this whole thing that he did the other day on, on, um, this Japanese island and kind of how they, they had these hidden secrets or whatever. I was like, fuck, this is fascinating, dude. Yeah, so, it is. Yeah. Super cool guy. Strange, dark, and mysterious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and you yeah. were saying, and you were saying before we went on air, like, don't donut operator yeah, was yeah, the same. Yeah. same it was in the buds class, class or yeah. whatever. Yeah, no kidding. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. It's a small. Uh, it's it gets to be a small world at times. Super small world. Yeah, and then uh, we're talking about before. Yeah, Mr. Ball did a or John did a did a video. Navy SEAL goes rogue in Iraq. And yeah, that, yeah. That, that brought us a lot of attention for my for my organization, Stronghold Rescue and Relief, which was really cool. So, so what what yeah. was that all about? Like, like I didn't watch that video because, yeah. to be fair, when I see thumbnails like that, I'm like, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, think, no, that's fair. I, I always fair. like, I'm like, whatever. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah. What like, was that all about? Well, yeah, that's a perfect way to jump into it. So, um, I was in the teams from basically 2010 to 2017, mm-hmm. um, and then I got out and basically I, I went over to the Middle East to volunteer with other American volunteers, uh, just as a civilian. I was still technically in the uh, in the Navy for the first like 30 days that I was over there in Iraq. I just took leave and just oh, yeah. left. Yeah. You're on terminal leave. Yeah. I wasn't technically on terminal leave. I was technically on regular leave. Oh. Um, and I, I, I split it up to where like my, my uh, leave would end on a weekend and I just hope they wouldn't call me in. That's oh, because nice. I mean, I'm not, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm on the other side of the world at that point. Right. Yeah. So I went over there and I, my, my intention was just to do, um, you know, humanitarian work right. and just, just whatever I could do to help out. You know, obviously I'm, I'm a team guy and so I'd love to, you know, obviously uh, fight bad guys if I, if the opportunity arises, but that wasn't my attitude when I went, it was very much, I want to help the people. Um, and that goes back to some stuff that happened in Afghanistan, which we can unpack a little later. But, um, when, 
So when I got over there, I thought I would just kind of be doing some basic medical work, but the Iraqi army had no medics. Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening is all the volunteers, we ended up being, because we're TCCC, we yeah. have TCCC training. And so therefore we are the medics. And so we ended up being on the front line of the battle of Mosul as the Iraqi army was clearing, uh, clearing Mosul uh, of ISIS. And I was there for about 30 days. Um, I was in the city of Mosul for 30 days until I ended up getting shot. And so during that, during that time, um, we were, you know, running rescue missions, trying to get, uh, civilians, um, out of, uh, you know, wounded civilians because ISIS was gunning down civilians mm -hmm. like crazy. And the, the day I ended up getting hit, um, ISIS had massacred about 200 civilians approximately who were trying to flee, um, the old city, uh, the, the section Nineveh. of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they were trying to, they were trying to get out of there. They gunned down 200 people. Mm -hmm. But when we got to where the massacre happened the next morning, um, there were still like people alive. There was kids alive still like in the piles mm -hmm. of bodies. And it was like biblical level piles of bodies where you could tell people had been shot and they were like climbing over the dead bodies. And then they, then they were getting shot and people were trying to climb over them. Uh, men, women, kids, uh, babies, uh, uh, pregnant women, everybody just slaughtered in the streets. And um, within that, there was like kids still like hiding in the bodies mm -hmm. and like walking around. And ISIS could see them because ISIS was maybe 50, 75 yards away. Um, they, they had taken over a hospital there. Um, and that was sort of their headquarters at, at, at that time. And so we basically decided, okay, we got to go, we got to go get some of these kids while we were making a plan to, to get it done. Um, two of the kids I think died from heat exhaustion because I saw a little boy. He was, uh, so a little, yeah, a little Iraqi boy, maybe seven or eight. And he had, his sister was maybe five or six. And we're, so we're sitting at there screaming at them to just to run across the street to us. Cause they were, this massacre had happened on a, on a, on a, on a highway. Mm -hmm. And so they just needed to run 75 yards and they'd be safe. They'd come right to us. If we go out there, ISIS is going to kill us. Mm -hmm. So I saw this little boy, he took a, he took a t-shirt or something. And this little girl, he had the little girl laid down on the ground. Keep in mind, it's Mosul in July, in June. Uh, had her laid down on the ground, so it's extremely hot. Put a put a like a t-shirt over her face, I think, to shade her. And then he laid down next to her with nothing. And then the, the two kids never stood up again. And a few hours later, we um, launched a rescue mission to get one of the little girls uh, who was like right in front of ISIS headquarters, like right there, like 50 meters away, hiding in a pile of bodies. And so we did the... Uh, Basically, we got the we got the Iraqi army to give us a tank, and we ran behind uh, an M1 Abrams. So it was an American tank mm -hmm. that, um, driven by Iraqi soldiers, and they just drove straight straight up to ISIS uh, headquarters. At the same time, the American military we were actually able to call them, and they were they put a drone overhead, saw the massacre, and so they were willing to give us a um, a smoke screen. So they were they were um, shooting airburst white phosphorus from some artillery battery somewhere nearby. And so they're giving this rough uh, sort of um, um, smoke screen, which is 50% effective. <laughs> and so this, the, so we get, so five or six of us get behind this Iraqi army tank. It drives straight into ISIS, uh, straight, in, straight into ISIS headquarters, basically. And uh, we're getting fired on from the flanks. ISIS is dumping mortars on us. This is like a suicide mission. Um, it was, in, in hindsight, I still don't know. Exa I mean, it was, I know why I did it. I did it because we had to save this little girl mm -hmm. and just that, you know, that, that protective instinct. And it was, this is the right thing to do. If we don't go, she, she's going to die. She's going to be dead. So, um, we, we got up there, we were able to, um, one of the, one of the guys on the team, Dave, he, he ran out and he grabbed the little girl that, that video went viral of him running out, grabbing the girl, myself and another guy named Sky, we, um, gave covering fire and that, that 15 or 20 second clip went like uber, uber viral. 
Um, cause there was a guy who was there filming, um, war crimes and atrocities and things like that. And he went with us behind the tank. And so we're taking fire from high ground on both flanks, but they're firing relatively blindly through the smoke. And we also tried to get two men, um, who had also been wounded. They'd been shot and severe, were severely injured and they were in the bodies as well. And so we pulled them out and started moving back. And the, the tank, we, again, we can't communicate with the tank. So the tank just starts backing up and, um, through this, through this killing field. And there's just, again, there's bodies. We're tripping over the bodies of the dead, um, dead kids and everything. And, uh, we're trying to, we're trying to pull these guys back. Um, so one guy, he was carrying the little girl, another guy, Sky, he was carrying, um, one of the wounded men and then myself and a Kurdish, uh, interpreter, we were dragging this, uh, we're dragging a man uh, like on a, like a tabletop that we had found in the middle of the street. Someone had clearly used it when they were trying to flee ISIS mm -hmm. and they had been killed. And so anyway, we had this tabletop, we're dragging him. Well, I turned around to give covering fire because the smoke was dissipating a little bit. And, um, the man who was on the tabletop that we were dragging, he fell off the tabletop and he just slid off and we couldn't pick him up and, and move him. Cause he has, he had been se severely shot like through the chest and shoulders. And, um, so the tank was going to, the tank was going to just run him over. Uh, so I jumped over behind the tank, rolled him out of the way and the tank missed him by, you know, basically the width of a hand, uh, just barely missed him. Keep in mind, there's incoming fire yeah. mortars, both directions. And, uh, so I, I stepped back behind the tank. So, so I looked at the guy and he looked, he looked back at me. So he's on his back and he looks back at me. We make eye contact and he's basically asking me, he's like, Hey man, are you going to come get me? And I was like, I, I shook my head and i said, I'm sorry. There's just no way. Cause if I go up in front of this tank, the tank, keep in mind, the tank is also firing its main gun. None of us right. are wearing ear pro. Uh, this main gun is going off. I'm like, dude, if I go up there, I'm going to get shot if the tank doesn't kill me. So anyway, I, I step back behind the tank and then I get shot, um, from the, from the flank, from our ex totally exposed right flank, just a lucky burst of machine gun fire through the, um, through the smoke. And all this is on video too. So it's like there's high definition video. I step back behind the tank a burst of machine gun fire comes in and I just go down hard. So the, the bullet hit me in my calf, just went right through my calf. So minor, uh, minor gunshot wound. Uh, I, did, I didn't know that at that exact second. Um, so the bullet went through my calf and then I fell down behind the, uh, behind the tank. And then the guys, they start screaming. They start screaming like, get up, get up, get up. Cause I'm looking at my leg going, all right, is my leg, uh, is my leg snapped in half? I'm like waiting right. for the pain to set in. I'm like <laughs> looking for blood. I'm in some sort of momentary shock cause I just got hit. Um, and then I turn around and I look and the tank is still backing up and I'm right. I'm looking at the treads. I'm, the, the tank is as close as I am to you. Like the, the tank treads and it's backing up. Um, and so I just had to pop up and just keep going on the, on the leg, um, through a tourniquet on, came on, we're, you know, tripping over the bodies of the dead as I'm like throwing, th throwing a tourniquet on walking backwards. Um, so we get to the, we get to the end of the street where, um, where we could, we could run across this basically a four lane highway, uh, to get back to Iraqi army lines. Where were you guys at? Like, like, um, like give me some reference points because yeah, I'm, I'm so, super familiar with Mosul. Okay. Okay. You know, the giant hotel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We we're right in front of the giant hotel okay. and the, the Coca-Cola Pepsi factory yeah, yeah, yeah. right between that. That's the highway. We're oh on. yeah. And so then there's the I, hospital I exactly where that's right at. on the yeah. Tigris river. Yeah. 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 That exact, that exact Holy road. Shit. Yeah. And I can show you, I can show you a video of all this too later. So you'll, you'll recognize it, but yeah, the hotel had like collapsed. Um, and so yeah, we're right between, we're right in the highway, right between those two buildings. Uh, taken fire from the hospital, right, which is right next right. to that fourth bridge. Yeah, um, and so, so, so we get to the end of the we get to the end of this, basically right next to the Pepsi factory, and we have to run across the open to get back into cover. Well, um, so we're we're every, we can't move the we can't move the patients because we're going to go too slow. 
And so we start screaming at the Iraqis. We're like, hey, send a Humvee, send a Humvee. They're right there. You know, they're a hundred yards away with armored Humvees. We're like screaming at them. They can't hear us. They're not going to move. Yeah. Nothing's going to happen. So um, basically I started going, I started going lightheaded <laughs> and I wasn't sure if it was from blood loss. Cause I looked down at my leg and I had two holes in my leg and it was pumping bright red blood. So um, I was like, oh so man. You, it went through. It went through. And so explain to me the the wound a little bit. From- yeah. So it entered, so it hit my calf. It mm-hmm. entered the outside of my right calf and exited the inside of my, okay. of, of the calf. Yeah. And so just, 760 by 39 or 760 no, by 54? No, I think it was it? a 556. Five, okay. Was, yeah. So ISIS was using uh, NATO ammo. I'm, Interesting. 90, I'm 99% sure it was a 5.56. Five, Cause if it was, if it was a 7.62, I mean, if, I feel like it would have blown my calf yeah. off. Yeah. Right. But it just went right through. I, I almost think it was like 5.56 five, armor piercing. Cause it just, oh, yeah, cause it just it was, poked a was hole. Was it just green tech right then? Through. It just poked a hole right through. I, th- I think so. I, I had to be ball because like, obviously if it just like was a straw going right through you. Like it was like a straw. And then yeah. the exit the exit wound was maybe the size of like a, a bottle cap. Okay. So it was maybe an inch, but it, I mean, it took off a, took off a good chunk. Um, but yeah, so it missed, missed the arteries, missed, missed everything, missed everything, missed the bones. What's it feel like when you get shot? Like, um, it feels like, at least in, in, in my case, it felt like, uh, it felt like getting hit by a sledgehammer. It's like someone just took a sledgehammer and just knocked my leg out from under me. Right. Um, that's, that's kind of what it felt like. And obviously there's that snapping noise as, yeah. as you know, of like bullets, uh, bullets coming in. So that's why I wasn't sure if my leg had snapped. Right. I didn't know as I'm like, as I'm processing this over the course of like three or four seconds, right after I got hit, I'm like, is my leg intact? Does right. it work? You know? Yeah. So it's- But what's it yeah. like? Like, so you you, you get shot in mm-hmm. the leg and now you have to use your leg. You have yeah. to apply weight on that. Yeah. What, what does that feel like? What, what is that? What it is burned. that like? It burned. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine imagine having a, uh, like a cramp, like a, you know, a calf cramp. Mm-hmm. Um, and then imagine that, but then like you take like a hot rod of, uh, of out of, out of the, take like a poker yeah. out of a fire and just shove that right through your leg and then add a cramp on top of that. That's what it feels like. Um, but again, your, your adrenaline's pumping, uh, you know, my, obviously my adrenaline was pumping and I was, um, you know, but you could still die. apply weight. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because the, because yeah. the structure of my leg was, was right. still intact, but yeah, it hurt. It hurt really, 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 really bad. Have but you ever had not much. more pain in your life outside of that? Um, yes. I had more pain in my life about five minutes later when they, when they shoved iodine, <laughs> when they twisted iodine oh. soaked gauze into it to, to, you know, cause there's Fuck. dust and debris yeah. and that, that place is just swarming with so flies. So they twisted iodine soaked gauze into and the entrance and the interior. Yeah. Yeah. Did they, who was doing that? Uh, the other medics that were, that yeah. were working Got there. It. So, so we get to the end of the street and I, we have to cross no man's land, um, this hundred yards. And so I was going lightheaded. I was like, okay, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to pass out or not. I'm a big boy. There's no way these dudes are going to drag me out of here. We're exhausted. We've been up like for multiple days at this point as well, yeah. treating wounded. And so I was like, Hey guys, I'm getting lightheaded. I'm going to run across the street and carry the message. So I hobbled as fast as I could, uh, across the street and ISIS immediately opens fire. Um, there's again, there was another journalist like in the rubble who yeah. filmed this thing and saw it as well. Uh, so that's on HD video. You can hear the snaps coming in. And then one of the guys who was there on the ground, he could see, uh, you can't see it in the video, but he said he could see the, the bullets impacting like two or three feet behind me. Cause ISIS was, they were yeah. taking good shots, <clears throat> but they just weren't leading me. So I get across the street and then I start screaming. I was like, we need a Humvee, we need a Humvee. And I see that they all finally, you know, take action. And so then I, at that point I'm good to go. And then the other medics like just jumped on top of me and started shoving iodine soaked gauze into my, into my leg. So that was fun. So you were with the Kurds, obviously. No, Iraqi army, actually. You were with Iraqi. Yeah, so the, the Iraqi army. 
So not obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, uh, well, we were inside Mosul. And so it would have been good to have the Kurds there, but the Iraqis didn't want to have the Kurds sort of enter into sort of traditional yeah, Iraqi territory. Cause even after the war's over, yeah. you know, there's still gonna be territorial disputes. So it was purely Iraqi army and we were just there volunteering, like helping those guys out. Um, how many guys were there? Like, we'll, we'll cut Americans. How many guys um, were there with you? Man, that's, that's it, it would vary. Cause guys would, guys would come and go. Um, and then you'd have, were there other team guys, like other, other guys that you knew or there um, guys like, there were from, no other guys that I knew there. Yeah. There were two former SF guys, a Marine, uh, two, two, actually, yeah, two two infantry marines, two SF guys, myself, um, another uh, army uh, officer who'd been in the um, what did he do? Uh, not the cavalry. He, he was like he'd been like a tank commander mm -hmm. or something. So yeah. like that was like the core group of like frontline guys. There was a lot of other volunteers yeah. who would do medical stuff or would drive ambulances or other stuff kind of in the right. rear. But as far as like frontline dudes, yeah, it was just there was just a handful of us who who would do that. Yeah, who were doing that. So yeah, it definitely was not a lot. And we were just with one brigade of yeah. the Iraqi, you know, uh, armored, they're, they're, they're one of their armored divisions. What was that like? I, I mean, I know that's a super complex question, but mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you're coming out of what I would say is a more, you know, conventional, even though it's an unconventional unit, then you're embedding yourself more with the Iraqi army. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're almost a subordinate asset to the Iraqi army at that yes. point, right? So yep. what's that like? Um, it was, it was definitely a bit of, uh, took a bit of adjusting, yeah. but, uh, so, so like I said, I was still during half of my time in Iraq, I was still technically in the Navy. Yeah. And so going over there, it was the, the, the most difficult part was, um, kind of putting my ego in check. Mm. Right. Uh, cause team guys, some team guys have egos. Oh, I don't know if you've heard, no way. I've never heard. So of <laughs> put my ego in check <laughs> and I had to realize pretty quickly that the SEALs do things one way. Mm -hmm. And like, we do things very strategically in that particular way. That way everyone's on the same page, but that doesn't mean it's the right way to do it or that, or that it's the only way to do it. Right. Like mm -hmm. SF's going to have different, you know, room clearing tactics. Rangers are probably going to have something slightly different. Right. And so when you go working with the Iraqi army, they have no tactics. They have, there's no concept of, of, uh, you know, safety risk management. There's mm -hmm. just, it just doesn't exist. And so that was, that was a little bit difficult, but you just had to sort of like, let yourself go. And we're just like, all right. If, uh, if I die, I die, just be as smart as you can. But, um, but not looking down on the Iraqis, that was a hard part too. At first was like, it's like, like, how do you guys not, you know, how do you guys not know how to do such and such like basic cover and move? Come on right. guys. But then you realize like, Hey man, they don't have the training. They're not, they're not lazy. They're yeah. not, uh, they're not cowards. Cause I was, I was incredibly impressed with the Iraqi army. I was shocked. I was shocked. The courage that these guys had, they would go out every single day and out of a group of 30, 40 guys, two or three are going to die. Like, mm -hmm every day and we're going to treat them and they're going to keep, they're going to keep moving. So it was, uh, it was definitely strange leaving the safety net and the umbrella that is the, you know, the U S military, um, and just being, Hey, you can do whatever you want. It's not, you know, it's, it's the wild West. When you go over there, you can do whatever you want, but also no one's coming to get you. Mm -hmm. No one's, no one's going to come get you out. So, um, you're, you're, you're on your own and you're taking a huge, huge risk and you're not paid and you're just there. You know, I bought my own flight ticket over there. Right. So, um, it was definitely strange leaving that umbrella of security and you can't call the aircraft to call in airstrikes and you no. completely lose all of that. And so you had to really, you had to really sit and think, okay, why am I here? Why am I doing this? What am I really willing to risk? Do I, do I really want to be here? And so you had to, I had to go through that sort of mental evolution of, of making peace with what I was doing, why I was there. And it was a little bit of a struggle at the beginning. Yeah, why? Like, why did you go over there? Well, 
the the re, the real reason when it when it comes down to it uh, at, at at my core level, and it's the reason why I run the organization I run mm-hmm. today, Stronghold Rescue and Relief, is um, I just wanted to help the people who were caught in the middle, who no one else was going to help. That's what I wanted to do. I joined the Navy because I wanted to. I wanted to fight bad guys, and I wanted to go to places other people weren't going to be willing to go. I wanted to take on tough missions, and I wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to help. I just. I know that sounds super stereotypical, but like that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to serve, and so when I was in the Navy, I had the opportunity to do that in Afghanistan, which was great. But during during that um, during that deployment in 2014. Um, I had, a, I had an experience where I almost had to kill two little girls. Um, they were wearing backpacks that were the exact same kind of backpack that we had just um, discovered an IED in mm-hmm. um, about an hour earlier. So uh, I don't know if they were actually suicide vests, but they were running straight at us. The Taliban had said, we intercepted radio communication. The Taliban said, hey, we're going to attack from the south. We're going to attack from the south. And they know that we're listening. And so then they send two little girls from the south with these same exact kind of backpacks on running straight at me because I was the guy on security on the south. And I almost had to shoot them. I was screaming at them to turn around. They eventually turned around and left. But that, that experience totally changed like my thought process. And I realized like, wow, there's like little girls just stuck out here, you know? And I think about how, how, you know, how scared I am. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a seal. I'm trained for this. I'm heavily armed. I got the, you know, I've got a good crew of dudes and we're going to, you know, and we're, and we're, you know, slinging lead and crushing souls. And we're, it's awesome when we've got the air force backing us up. And even then under that, I still feel fear. And you, you know, it's like, sometimes if you're pinned down at a bad situation, you're like, dude, I could die in like any second now you, you focus and you do your job. But my thought was, you're like, still scared. Exactly. Like anybody who's still scared. scared is fucking lying or yeah. they've got a mental or problem. Or they're a crazy person. Yeah. yeah. They've got a mental problem. Exactly. Yeah. So my thought is like, just imagine you're an eight year old, 10 year old girl yeah. and you have no idea what's going on. Um, so that was part of my motivation for leaving the military. Cause I just wanted to, I wanted to go to places where people needed help and then to mm-hmm. use my background in whatever way I could. You're a corpsman? Uh, no, I was not a corpsman. I oh. wasn't. I was a uh, uh, JTAC radio man. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I did a little intel stuff as well. Right. But yeah, so I was not a corpsman, but I wanted to create an organization that could send guys with our backgrounds to go and help people who will never, they'll never be able to pay you. Mm-hmm. They'll never, they don't even, they don't even know that like you exist. They don't even know like meaning, meaning like special operations guys. They don't mm-hmm. even know that special operations guys exist. They just want someone to come help them mm-hmm. because they're getting raped and murdered and slaughtered in their own countries or they're facing, you know, crime syndicates and things like this. They don't know what to do. They're caught in the middle of it. So if you can send guys over there to provide those services free of charge to assist them, to help them, you're not there to get your gun on. You're not there to fight, but um, you'll stand with them if, 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 if things go south while you're there. And that's, and that's what my organization, Stronghold Rescue and Relief does. Um and that's, I guess that's my motivation. I just wanted to be there to, to help people that no one else was going to be able to help. And that's why I ended up in Iraq. And that's why I ended up, you know, starting my organization. What, what happens when you're on leave and you get shot? Um, so you're so, technically still part of the Navy. So by that point I was technically out of the Navy. Okay, so it. the first 30 days of uh, like the 90 days that I was there, I was it. still active duty Okay, and I was involved in combat during that time. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, that was something I thought about as well too. I thought, huh, like I'm still IRR, you know, individual ready reserve. <laughs> right. like, like it's like, what does this mean, you know? But um, yeah, luckily, what does it mean? Like I, nothing. I, I, mean, I think it means basically? nothing. It means yeah. nothing. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so it was. You didn't get your purple heart for no purple heart for no. being in the navy and being shot in Iraq, which is yeah. while fighting with the Iraqi army. Yeah, so technically, along. like yeah. 
technically you could still probably get one, but you weren't under official orders. So. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. definitely wasn't under official yeah. orders. Yeah, and it's 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 who cares? It is what it is. Who cares? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was definitely um definitely a life changing experience. Um, I'm, I'm what'd you do? Like, did, how did you recover? So, did you stay in Iraq? to recover or did you come home to the United States to recover from the injury? So that's, that's also an interesting sort of fascinating experience. We want to talk about a weird experience. So after I got shot, um, I went to, I was taken in one of the ambulances run by the, the other volunteers, yeah. the American volunteers I was with. And they took me to the, the CCP, uh, casualty collection point, which was a, which was in a bombed out mosque. And so I go into the mosque. Where were you at? In Mosul? In, in Mosul still. Okay. Yeah. So in this what, is- what area of town were you um, in? Still like Northwestern, okay. Northwestern Mosul area. Got it. Yeah. I think- uh, So you're like on the west side of the river. West side. Okay. West side of the river. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so we were maybe 10 minutes away. Uh, the ambulance drove maybe 10 minutes to get me to the CCP. Mm -hmm. So I go in there and um, there's Iraqi army doctors, like doctor level doctors working on me. And also- Mennonite women, Mennonite women in like the full like blue dresses with like the outfits on. Yeah, that's that does the same face I made. So there were Mennonites who were there who are who are who are pacifists. Like they don't believe yeah. in violence. They they were they even if you're attacked, like they're not going to fight you back. They were there in Mosul volunteering to treat the wounded, and it's kind of mind kind of mind blowing. So I get this wounded. This is like some apocalypse now type. Thing that, it doesn't sound like, real. It doesn't sound real. It doesn't sound Almost real. It's like you took a high dose of psychedelics and now yeah. you're in a Mennonite with Iraqi. In a mosque. In a mosque. In a bombed up mosque in Mosul. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so they, so they, so they stabilized me and treated me and got me some painkillers and stuff. And they made sure that there wasn't any like major damage and everything was, everything was fine. So then that day, um, uh, there was a group of Mennonites that were going back to Erbil and so they uh, they said, hey, you can ride with us to go back to Erbil to get basically medevaced out of here. Right. So we got you got to get you to a higher level of care. So um, I rode with them in a car through uh, fr from Mosul up to Erbil, mm -hmm. and then we went to uh, a uh, a Kurdish hospital, and they dropped me off the Kurdish hospital, and then they the the, the Kurds checked me out, and there was there were some other uh, Western doctors that were there as well assisting the the, the Kurds. And so the, I, I had to spend the night in a ward filled with Kurdish soldiers who had all been wounded in the, in the fighting mm -hmm. there in, in Iraq. And so the entire night, so the, I, I was on the bed in the ward on the farthest edge. And there was guys there who were like messed up, messed yeah. up. They'd been shot like real bad, like right. dudes who were hurting. And, um, so then I forget what time of day it was. They, they, they turned off the, they turned off the lights and was like, Hey, it's time for bed. And then the, the doctors all left the, the ward and they just had a you know somebody on call. As soon as the lights went out, maybe like an hour later, like as guys are starting to like fall asleep, the screaming and crying, like I'll never forget it. So I'm just laying there in the dark by myself with a bunch of Kurds who are wounded, and they're screaming. A lot of these guys are screaming for their mothers, and they're in and they're weeping, and they're in like this excessive amount of pain, you know. And my 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 injury was very minor compared to most of these guys, and so in the middle of all that. I'm laying there and then all of a sudden I see the door open at the far end of the, of the, of the mm -hmm. hospital ward and somebody comes walking in. It's a guy in a suit and he's got a flashlight and a file and he starts shining the flashlight on everyone's faces. And at some point he stops shining it on people's faces and then he just turns and shines the light all the way down and stops right on me, keeps the flashlight on my face and walks straight up to me. And this is all in the dark and I can't quite see who it is. There's this bright 
light in my face. Um, and so the guy sits, uh, the guy stands there and he's like, are you, are you Ephraim Matos? And he like pulls up this file. I was like, like, yep. And, uh, he's a Kurdish guy. He's like, I'm from Kurdish intelligence. I need to ask you a few questions. And then I realized, I was like, oh, I look like I'm ISIS. I'm a white dude with a red beard shot in Mosul who showed up in, who showed up with the Kurds. Yeah. Yeah. So they, so he was like, I got to talk to you. And so, um, so he started basically asking me a bunch of questions like, who the hell are you? What the hell are you doing? Yep. Show me your phone. (laughs) So I was like, yep, yep, yep. No worries. No worries. So I I basically told him uh, the same story I'm telling you right now and explained sort of who I am, what I was doing, showed him photos and everything. And he eventually wrote down a few notes and eventually just kind of sat there and listened to my story. And uh, then he just said, hey man, thanks for, thanks for helping us. Uh, And then he got up and walked out. And then the, uh, the next morning they did a debridement on my leg. So I was wheeled into this little operating room, like a very first class, nice operating room. They gave me some anesthetic, not nearly enough anesthetic. <laughs> and, uh, so the, uh, the doctor who was going to do a debridement, basically cut away all the, the, the dead burned flesh and stuff from my right. leg. Um, and to make sure that nothing was like rotten so they could clean it all out. He, uh, he's like, Oh, you're Peshmerga, you're Peshmerga. And I said, no, 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 I wasn't with the Peshmerga. I was with the Iraqi army. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, you don't know what Peshmerga means. And he said, it's, 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 uh, those who face death. And he's like, you face death. Thank you for helping us. And it was like this like very kind, just sort of like, for lack of a better term, like just very, like very sweet, gentle, like very sincere moment where this guy, where this doctor was like, he said, he was, so he said, thank you. And he said, he said a few words in Kurdish and kind of explained to everyone else, like who I was and what I was doing there. And then, so the, all these Kurdish doctors, one by one, they like, it was, they, 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 they each put their hand on me and said, thank you in English. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then they knocked me out and clean me up. Um, so really bizarre. So then I spent the next two weeks, um, just sitting basically in, a, uh, in one of the safe houses for the, for the volunteers that were there. Um, I spent two weeks there until the pain was, uh, to a level that I could travel. Cause I basically, yeah. I had to keep my leg elevated. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I literally flew home to Chicago. I flew home to, to, I was going to Milwaukee. So I flew to Chicago. Um, and my folks picked me up from the airport in Chicago. And then I spent the next few weeks just like stretching it out and, <laughs> and, uh, doing my own rehab. Yeah. yeah. What do you tell your parents at that point? Like, like what, what is the explanation here? So they, they knew that I was there. So my, um, I, I'd explained to them even before I went over to Iraq, what, what I was going to go do. And, um, so obviously they, you know, they were, were used to this sort of thing from me, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, you're going to join the military. Okay. Yeah. You're going to join the SEALs. All right. You've had a couple, you know, close calls with death during, during your time, just in training, um, you know, you've had a parachute failure, you've had, you drowned, what? Okay, you've been to Iraq, you've been like, uh, or, sorry, Afghanistan, you know, so you've been, you've been through all this stuff. Yeah. Right. So like, they're kind of used to that. So then when I say, Hey, I'm going to go volunteer in Iraq. So my mother, she's, she's, she's the absolute like best woman. She, um, she, I call her the ultimate Spartan mother. So I told her, um, that I was going to Iraq and I called her on the phone and said, Hey mom, I'm going to go to Iraq like next week and I'm going to go volunteer mm-hmm. and help out. And, uh, so she of course starts choking up. She's yeah, crying course. a little bit and she just says, that's great. She's like, you go, go do what you need to do. You go help those people. That's what she said. That was her response. She never asked me not to go. She never asked me why, nothing that, none of that. So, um, and I'd been keeping them updated on what I was doing. Um, actually my brother who was not a veteran who had never been in the military, he actually came out and volunteered as well, just as a driver, just to drive the ambulances. And so I'm I'm super proud of him. He did a great job. He's taken direct sniper fire from ISIS snipers and stuff. Yeah. And he's just, Never, never been to war in his life, but he's, he did a great job driving, driving ambulances and moving wounded back. Um, so my parents were very aware of like what we were doing. I just have the one brother. So just, so both of us are there. And 
so the funny thing is when I got, when I got shot, um, there were, because there was, there's no, there's no OPSEC. There's, there's, there's none of that. Like it's going to go, I I knew there was cameras. I was like, oh my goodness. Like my mom's going to think my last thing I need to, the last thing I need for my mom is to get a text from somebody. Hey, your son just got shot. Mm -hmm. And then no further information. You know, I don't need her panicking thinking I'm dead for, for a few days or, or for an hour or even a minute. Yeah. So I messaged her. So I actually had cell signal from the east side of Mosul because east of Mosul had already been cleared. So they had cell phone towers back up and I have an uh, international plan with T-Mobile. Yeah. <laughs> so I could literally pull out my phone. I was like, hey mom, uh, everything's good. I forget if I called her or if I texted her. I don't remember, but I communicated with her uh, basically when I got to the to the, uh, to the the mosque. I was like, hey, just so you know, I've been shot. I, I, I was shot in the calf. Everything's fine. It's all good. Uh, but I, I said, I've been shot in the calf. My mother, she's the funniest. Without skipping a beat. So I say, I got shot in the calf. And she goes, oh, but at least you didn't get shot in the bull. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Calf, bull. Yeah. That was her. That was her. That was her immediate comeback. Yeah. yeah. That's a solid mom. Uh, that's, a, that's a solid that's a mom to mom. be like, at least you didn't get caught. <laughs> shot. <laughs> that's a <laughs> solid comeback for a mom. Yeah, like, it's it fantastic. Like, for her to say yeah. that, like, versus like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? You know? Yeah, no panic. Yeah. She just, she, she was, she was, uh. Yeah, she was great. So yeah, my parents were. Um, very had you been shot before or wounded? No, no, no. no that was my first time. I, I'd had a, a couple times though, like when I was in when I was going through the SQT, yeah, uh, SEAL qualification training. It's no big deal. Uh, no big deal. Yeah. Whatever. Autographs <laughs> later. Uh, uh, yeah, I like had a parachute malfunction on my like eleventh jump. So yeah, so like that. That's that's, that's worth us unpacking. So yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah. Eleventh jump in yeah. free fall. So you've already yeah. gone through. Did you go through the accelerated course? That's yeah, the five day static blah, line. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So were you in? Where were we at? Yuma or were no? You I was in else? San Diego. Okay, you're in San Diego. I was in San Diego doing free fall. Um, and so I was the first jumper out of the first plane that day, and it was my eleventh jump. So just a lot okay. of ones there. Yeah. Um, so we go up. And we were doing a um, we we're doing a, a sort of a group jump, so five guys jump out, and then you all try to land at the same time. Okay. So um, pretty pretty standard training jump, and so I jump out of the plane, um, and the, uh, the my instructor he came up to me. He's like he's like I'm not gonna t-, he's like don't tell anybody this. He's like but I want you to pull like 500 feet lower than than normal. He's like because I want you to lead the team, and as I want you, he's like I want you to be a little bit lower so they can kind of follow you in. We were still I was still instead of pulling at like. Six thousand. He's had me pull like five thousand, or okay. like five fifty, or something. Like yeah. so, it wasn't. It wasn't a bit. It's not. It's not crazy. No, yeah, no, yeah. no. Because no, you're no. not pulling at like twenty five or no, something. no, yeah. nothing like that. And we're jumping the big two. Was it the MT two double X? Right. Big military rigs. Like a giant, giant yeah, thing. Yeah. You, you'd land a fucking Abrams underneath it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so I jump out of the plane. Um, you know, I go through my go through my procedures, watch my altimeter, wave off, and uh, I pull my I pull my chute. Well. Um, up until that point, every single time I had gone through the procedure properly, and after I after I uh, after you pull your chute, then you go to check your canopy, right? Yeah. Well, this time I didn't check my canopy because I uh, my my chute deployed and I got pulled vertical. Okay. And so I was like, cool. Yeah. And cool. I was like, I was like, I don't even need to check my chute. So I went to stow my ripcord, but then I was like, there's too much wind going up my nose. Why is there so much wind going up my nose? And so then I look up at my canopy, and it's just a it's the it's just a big pile of yeah, trash yeah a pile, it's a of pile, pile of laundry and i was like and i remember i remember when i looked up at it i honestly got mad i was like dude are you kidding me <laughs> I was like are you kidding me i was like dude no no so i'm sitting there still falling and i'm watching this and i'm i'm, I'm staring i'm like you gotta be kidding me so like i'm staring at it and i'm slowly going through my emergency procedures right. which you're supposed to do quickly yeah, but yeah. i'm just like okay look right grab and looks over and grabs over i literally took a deep breath waited for it to open i was like nope so i had to do the go through the discard yeah. procedures go back into free fall and then you know deploy the second shoot and um 
so luckily the second shoot opened. That was like the longest four seconds of my life waiting for that second shoot to open. And then when it did open, uh, I went to grab my risers to, uh, to, you know, to, to start taking control of the, of the shoot. And my hands were shaking so bad from this, just from of the course. adrenaline. Yeah. My hands were shaking so bad. Yeah. I literally couldn't grab the risers. Yeah. Um, like mentally I felt very calm, yeah. but like my body was just in like full, yeah. you know, like full shaking mode. So I had to like hook my thumbs in, and I had to like hook the, the risers around my wrist and then pull them out. So I mm-hmm. kind of went into like the spiral as I was like getting, getting control. Um, so it was fine. I ended up landing. So um, as, as I came in, I, I, I landed it. Well, the other guys in the stack were who were following, following me, they had been, they had been following me. They saw me, they saw me in free fall, deploy my shoot. They saw the, 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 you know, yeah. the, the shoot tangled and then they saw me cut away. So the guy who was right behind me, he saw the whole thing. Um, well, the guy who was like two or three guys back, he didn't see me deploy my second shoot. He just saw my first shoot fall off the drop zone and land on the and land off the drop zone. So keep in mind, he's only got eleven jumps too, or ten. So jumps. he's following the first shoot. So he so he he thinks I'm dead, and we oh, were roommates fuck. at the time. So he thinks I'm dead. He thinks I just burned in. So he actually goes off the drop zone, off mission profile, yeah. and starts circling me, considering landing with me. And then at the last second, at like maybe like five hundred feet, he comes in and just does like a full on bank back into the drop zone. And barely pulls it in, like totally could have, totally could have paralyzed himself because he just did like a low level. Was this in San Diego? Like the, in San Diego, yeah. Was it the the DZ up there? The was it Skydive San Diego? Skydive San Diego. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Jumped that up one. there. It's fucking yeah. awesome. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. DZ. So you're. Did you come in right on the DZ then? I I, you, I was able to come in right yeah. on the DZ. I landed. So where just was fine. The, where did your shoot? Land? My shoot landed in the in sort of the mountain off to the to the south. Okay, toward the, yeah, yeah. Toward the Mexico border. Yeah, so my so, buddy kind of went over there, started circling it, oh, and then at the last second he banked in. Got it. And came in and landed. And so the instructor um, who who had followed us out of the plane had, to watch the whole jump and everything, he goes over as my buddy Mikey, and he starts screaming. I was like, Mikey, what the hell, man? You got to kill yourself. And he's screaming at him. So my buddy, he's picking up his shoe, and he's like, tears are coming down his face. He's like, we got to get Matos. We got to get Matos. He's over there. You know? And so then uh, the instructor, like, goes up to him, like, puts his hand on his shoulder. And he's like, hey, man. Like, and he just kind of points over to me, you know, 50 yards away on the drop zone. As so my buddy's like, oh, okay. So he, <laughs> he thought I was dead. He thought oh, I'd burned in. Yeah, so- that was uh, that was my first sort of experience, and I, I remember telling my telling my parents about that later that day, and like you know, my mom was like all freaked out, you know. Of um, course, yeah. But it was it was definitely an interesting uh, interesting experience, and then I had this like weird recurring dream right after that for like the next week, where every night I would go to sleep and I would go into free fall, and then I would wake up, and then the, I would have the same dream the next night, but I would get a little bit farther through the jump, and then I would wake up, and then eventually it got to the point five or six iterations in where my, my parachute was malfunctioning. And then by, I think like the seventh or eighth night, I went through the same dream the whole way through all the way burned in and in the dream and was like laying on the ground, like with like broken bones and stuff. And guys were walking up to me. That was right. the dream that I had. But then after that, I didn't have the dream anymore. So my brain was like processing what could have happened and what it would have been like to like burn in and, you know, have every bone in my body broken right. and watch the guys coming up to me to get me out of there. Oh, that it's just bizarre. That I mean, I your your mind does the weird things. Like I, for years, I had the same I had the same dream every week for years, and it was me on a rooftop. I expended every mag, and I had one frag left. And you know, whomever I will call it AQ or whomever we were fighting at the time was coming up the stairs, and I had one frag. I had nothing left, and then I would wake up as soon as they were like at the top of the stairs. Mm-hmm. But it was literally the same dream for four or five years, yeah, almost every week. And then it got further away 
you know, the further away from Iraq I was, the less I would have it. So then I went to Afghanistan after that. And then now I, I haven't had that dream. I had it like maybe a year ago, but mm-hmm. I used to have it every week. Wow. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, it's so weird. It was so weird because yeah, it was like, yeah, it was yeah. like my, like some of my worst fears, right? Yeah. It was like, oh, I'm going to end up on a rooftop fighting for my life. Like I'm going to have to do this like whole fucking E&E. I'm going to be the only one left and I'm going to fucking expend everything. I got one frag left. Mm-hmm. It's that standard kind of like fight dream where you can't punch anybody, right? Yeah, like, yeah. You can't like shoot anybody. Yeah, you're and, just trying, now trying to squeeze like the one trigger. frag yeah. and that's what we were talking about yesterday like cooking off frags was also like the thing that I worried about. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be in this situation where Murphy's law takes over and I've got to like cook off frags. I fucking mm. like, um, cause Murphy's law is going to tell me, or for me, it's going to dictate, I'm going to get the one frag that doesn't have the timing. Yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah. the, the, the chemical sequence correct in it. And yeah. I'm going to get it like fucking short fuse and I'm going to fucking blow myself up. Like, yeah. that was like a fear. Is it, is, is, is it unfounded? So I'd go out and throw frags every day to try to get more comfortable with yeah, <laughs> the yeah. fact that if I got to cook these things off and I didn't want to. Yeah. And I almost wondered with, with, with your dream there, the, I, cause I've obviously had so many just crazy dreams. It's your, your brain is trying to process stuff, right? Your mm-hmm. subconscious is trying to process stuff. So I almost wonder with your dream, if you're, you're, you were struggling with the question of, do I kill myself with the grenade? That's what it was. Or do I, or do yeah. I kill or them I with kill the them? grenade? That was always the do question. I, do I kill like two of them, <laughs> yeah. but then the other five exactly. guys are going to come get me? Because, yeah. yeah. So if I fucking, if I toss the frag in on top of them, yeah, yeah I get a couple, maybe, yeah. but I'm still going to get. There's, you're going to get rolled up. Or do I just, you know, absorb it and take it? You know, do I take on the, 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 the element of basically suicide and yeah. killing whomever is with me here on the, on the rooftop. But yeah, that was always the question that I was left hanging with. Mm-hmm. And it was horrible because I hated the dream. Every, yeah. every morning after that dream, I'd wake up and I'd feel like I, I had literally been doing like, you know, fight gone bad, a CrossFit workout all fucking night long. Yeah. You know, yeah, I was yeah. Like exhausted every time. Mm-hmm. And then I almost go to bed at night in fear that in I was going to happen again. I'm going to have the yeah, same dream for yeah. fucking years. Yeah. And, um, you know, that is the story as, as to pertains to nothing other than like fucking dreams. Like, yeah. I, I just actually over the last uh, couple of months. So I just, I just basically did like a six month deployment to, to Burma and saw some pretty hairy stuff. And my, my Terp, like my, one of my best friends, I watched him slowly die because he got hit. Um, you know, so I like, I was just, I'm like fresh out of that yeah. and I'm going back soon. But, um, over the last few months, it's like, I've been having some, some, some crazy dreams. And it was, I've never experienced it to the point where I was like afraid to go to bed, but there was like a couple of weeks there and mm-hmm. not at the moment now, but there was a couple of weeks, like as of like a month and a half ago where every night I was like, dude, I don't want to go to sleep. I don't want to go to sleep. Cause like, I know I'm going to have these God awful dreams and you know, it's, yeah, it's tough. Cause then it's like, now you're not sleeping well, but you need the sleep so you, you can heal. Yeah. yeah. So it's this, it's just vicious, it's well, this vicious I, circle. It, and that's what gives me a lot of empathy for, for the guys that actually deal with the sleep deprivation based on, you know, really negative dreams. Yeah, because there, yeah. there is a cohort of our peer group that can't sleep because of what they've been through. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they have this like innate fear of going to sleep because they know that they're going to, you know, be in a fight for their life or they're going to be fucking terrified. It's like essentially yeah. going into like Friday the 13th or, or not Friday, like the Freddy Krueger scenario every right, fucking right. night. And you might or might not, you know, see him or, 
you know, you might get a good night's sleep. I don't know, but it's flip a coin. I went through like years of that where I'm like, fuck man, like I, I'm gonna have to like, you know, hopefully I sleep good tonight. Yeah. And yeah. then it's like, but then I'd have it and I'm like, all right, I'm good for a few days. So psychological relief. And then I'd be like, all right, well then, and then a week would go by and I'd be like, oh, here it comes, here it comes again. <laughs> yeah, like, here it comes. Uh, here we go. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, isn't combat fun. Yeah. Yeah. Hip, yeah. Hip, hooray. Yeah. You know? It's just like the movies. Yeah. yeah it's so, just like the movies. So glad we're doing this. So yeah. John Wayne, you're so right. Yeah, exactly. You know? And I, I, yeah, that's why I was having experienced that just for like two weeks. Um, I, I, again, luckily it, I was stopped having sort of the, the really, really bad nightmares I was having. So that's good. But, um, but, but yeah, so strange. You keep, you keep going back. Yeah. Like, like keep going I'm back still very much this. active. Like, it's your, yeah. your, your wedding ring. Yeah. Yeah. Where's your wife live? Uh, so we just got married actually in July. Okay. Um, so she's going to actually go, um, with me overseas and be based out of, uh, be based out of country over there. I don't want to say on air, like yeah, where sure. exactly we're going, but, um, so I'm going to be, I'm going to be going into Burma, um, and doing, uh, basically a deployment there. You plan just, on having kids? Yeah. At some point in the future. Yeah. yeah within the next couple of years. Because everything probably. changes, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you know that, but it's like everything mm -hmm. changes because then yeah. it's like now you have other things that are also part of your DNA structure that depend on you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so for me, like what I do now, um, I don't, obviously I already know, I already know, like yeah. um, it's a, it's the, the shelf life on this is, is pretty short mm -hmm. and it's, and it's actually good. Um, it's really, really good thing. Like my, my wife, um, as we, I like to say, she like, she like civilized me in, in a way and, and is really, and, and in a way is, is very much like saving me from going down this path that I'm currently on and never coming back from what it. What do you mean by that? What do you, what I mean, you like, cause I'm still, I'm still very heavily involved in, in, uh, in combat and things yeah. like that. So, um, again, I'm not, I'm not seeking it, but it's just what I do. So right. my organization, stronghold rescue and relief, we go into conflict zones and, uh, protecting care for families mm -hmm. that are in those places. And so that involves being in very, very dangerous mm -hmm. situations. And I just, like I said, I just spent six months, uh, in Burma living in the jungle. Um, Wait, but, when you go there, obviously, like mm -hmm. that—that's a non-permissive environment because you're not supposed to be there, mm -hmm. right? Like a, well, no, it's it's a permissive environment because the tribe that I work with, I work with the Karen tribe right. uh, in particular. They want me there. They're, they're very happy to have me there, and so. But the Bur Burmese the, the central government, yes. yeah, the central government, a government of Burma, yeah, they are the bad guys, but they are the ones who are oppressing all the ethnic minorities. They are the ones who are raping and murdering and destroying villages and stuff. But if like they that. catch you there, like, like, the, oh, I'll, I'll, they'll kill me. Yeah. Put me in prison forever. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 But it's, so yeah, the rules just don't get caught. Um, but, but it's the, the way, the way it works is, um, like, no, you live like in the mountains with the people. Like I'm, I'm not going to get, no one's going to like knock on my door and like pull me out of my bed in the middle no. of the night and arrest me. Like, no, no, no. Like I'm living in a hut in the jungle miles and miles and miles away from like where the, the bad guys have sort of their, their stronghold. And then we go to the frontline areas. So it is a possibility that would happen, but it would happen in the middle, in the context of a battle. It mm. wouldn't, it's, yeah, yeah. it's not like that. So right. um, the air, the area that I'm working in is actually the same area where um, British, um, I don't want to say, they weren't OSS. What were they? They had the, uh, the special, during World War II, whatever the- The SAS guys? No, they weren't SAS. They were uh, British, like Secret Service type stuff, oh, but okay. not the OSS, like the British version. I'm slipping my mind. But I'm working in the same hills where they worked in fighting the Japanese, working with the same tribe oh. to fight against the like Japanese. Bridge over River Kwai type. Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah. yeah, same, same, same exact area. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting too. One of the one of the villages that I go through every time I'm in every time I'm there in Burma, it's where the Japanese executed a, a British officer. Um, I can't remember his name. Um, but yeah, so there was this British officer who was there um, helping organize the resistance against the Japanese. And so the Japanese started killing civilians 
um, along with the Burmese. So mm -hmm. the Burmese and the Japanese were working together. They started killing Karen civilians until the Karen gave up the British officer. They wouldn't give up the British officer who was they had hiding in the hills. And so eventually the British officer heard about this and he came in and turned himself in. And then the Japanese executed him by firing squad. And so I go through the same village where this where this thing happened. Um, and the one of the guys I work with, he's one of the leaders there, his mother was, who's passed away now, his mother was one of the ladies who helped um, hide, actually his name was Colonel, Colonel Seagram. She helped hide Colonel Seagram in this one particular uh, mountain pass in the hills. And they told me when I was there, they're like, oh, this is where the British guy was. In World War II, and I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah. And some of the places I've been to, they're like, you're the you're the first you're the first uh, Galawa white person. You're the yeah. first white person to be here since World War II. And some of the like very very forward locations, like you're the first person to be back here to see it. Um, and you know, which is which is a, a strange strange thing. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, how often are you in? I would say that uh, combat specific environment when you're. Like, at, le it, at least half the time. Really? Yeah, at least half the time. Um, so, so what, what my organization what are you doing? Yeah, like, so what that's, are you specifically doing? Yeah, so I'll explain like what the, what the organization does, and then sort of my role mm -hmm. within it. So, um, my organization is called Stronghold Rescue and Relief. And um, so, what we do is we have we have three primary missions. So, we're a nonprofit organization. We do emergency medicine, humanitarian relief, and then refugee protection is sort mm -hmm. of is sort of what we call it. Um, refugee protection. Um, so, so emergency medicine particularly in Burma, we have four ambulances that run full-time that are run by local ethnic crews and we manage them and organize them, but they're the ones who run it. So we call it charity with dignity. It's uh, Green Beret 101. Mm -hmm. Go in, train up the locals, buy with and through, mm -hmm. AAA, advise, assist a company, all that. So um, that's how we have this medical system built because we're in, these, we're in these environments where there's zero medical care. Well, not zero medical care. There's zero medical transport to get to medical care. Mm -hmm. And so you have guys stepping on landmines. You have pregnant women in some random village um, I, the reason, one of the reasons we started the ambulance was, um, last year I was, we were driving through Burma in one of our, in one of our trucks, one of our stronghold trucks. And they stopped us and they said, Hey, can you, can you take this lady to the clinic? And so there, there was a lady who had been bleeding out, a pregnant lady who was seven months pregnant, had been bleeding out for 12 hours in her hut. And we were the first truck to come along that the, we were the first truck that they could get to, to take her toward the clinic, take her to the clinic, which was like five hours away by truck, let alone if you had to walk through the hills, like she'd die. Right. I was like, yeah, of course, of course. Like, get her, get her in the truck, and we took her to the clinic. Um, there's a, a clinic run by, actually, this is cool, um, run by the father of one of your uh, former employees. I won't say names because just at, at this mm -hmm. point, they're keeping stuff secret. Well, I know um, who that is. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, your uh, former employee's mm -hmm. father runs this incredible clinic. Mm -hmm. um, they do incredible work. They're doing, doing like surgeries in they, a tent they, in the they've jungle. Been, they've been doing this for. 40 years, right? Like that's, their, in, that's in different parts, but yeah, yeah they, now they have yeah, their own yeah. sort of thing. Um, but they don't have the ambulances. Nobody has ambulances. And so we went in and we set up ambulances, including a boat ambulance. And so, I mean, every single day I could pull you, I could pull you photos up to, um, from on my phone over just the last week, guys with legs blown off, guys with spinal injuries, and all these guys who are out there defending these villages that are under constant attack. Uh, women, kids, can they're, you know, arms blown off. But what's the, like what's the agenda from, from that government's perspective? What, what, what are they, what are they pacifying from, from, uh, from what, yeah. what, what, what are they benefiting from this? So Burma, the war in Burma is very unique in the fact that world war II never ended for Burma. Mm -hmm. 
So when the British left, so, so the ethnic Burmese, not all ethnic Burmese, but in general, the ethnic Burmese sided with the Japanese to fight the British because they didn't like the fact that the British had made Burma like one of their colonies. So the Japanese come in, the Burmese fight alongside the Japanese. However, the Japanese start to lose. And so then the Burmese switch sides and they go back to the British and they say, hey, we're friends now. And so then for the last year of the war or last like six or nine months of the war, the, the Burmese – they are fighting alongside the British. So then the Brit- so then the war ends, the British leave. They leave all their weapons and ammo and all this other stuff behind, and they leave it with the ethnic Burmese. Now, the problem is um, the ethnic Burmese at that time, they were trying to um, – exterminate is not the right word – subjugate. They were trying to subjugate all the other ethnic minority groups. And there's like – there's a lot of different ones. Let's say there's about like a dozen like big ones. Totally different culture, totally different language. You know, you and I going in and looking at them, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but they can tell the difference. And to, again, totally different languages and religions and stuff like that. And so the ethnic Burmese, basically, they took all the took all the weapons. They and they, the Burmese military, the Burma Army, they formed the Burma Army, which became the government of Burma. It's like if General Mattis was like, "Hey, the right. Marines, we're, we're we are now we now run DC, right?" That would be cool. That would be interesting. <laughs> that's the one way to put it. So, but that, but that's basically what's going on. And so now that the Burma army wants to subjugate all of these ethnic minority, group, minority groups, the problem is they're not really truly strong enough to do it, but they're also, none of the ethnic minority groups are united enough to completely stop the Burma army. So for the last 75 years, they've been fighting this war, trying to stop the Burma army from controlling all of the sort of the, the border areas of the country. And so the Burma army, they... Um, their sort of official policy is that they are ethnically superior and that everyone else needs to be subjugated. And so if you resist them, they feel completely justified in their head to go in, rape, murder, exterminate villages, burn villages. I've got videos of this stuff I'll show you as well. I did actually, I did an article for, uh, for a coffee or die magazine. Yeah. Yeah, And there's, I put videos in there that were given to me when I was there, this stuff happened when I was there, villages burning, piles of bodies of, of, uh, civilians been slaughtered, um, children, half, half of them were children bodies piled, burned and everything like that. So, and that was like, that video was taken maybe a mile or um, two or three miles away from where I was at when I was there. So that's, that's what's going on at the moment. Um, and so everybody's constantly fight. So the Burma army is fighting everybody and everybody's fighting the Burma army. The problem is none of the ethnic minority groups or a lot of them, they're not quite as united as they need to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the war just continues on and continues on and continues on. Um, things have shifted, um, since 2021, um, the, basically the, I'm going to go to the politics of it, but basically the, the entire country was like, all right, we're sick of the Burma army. And so then the Burma army who had most, mostly control in the cities, even the city people started rising up and we're like, nah, like we're, we're, we're tired of you guys. We want democracy. And so now the entire country is just in flames as they're trying to get rid of the Burma army. So the Burma army, they're like an occupying force in a hostile country. Interesting. Yeah. Even though they're from there yeah. now that over the last two years, everything has changed. It's flipped. And so the violence is just off the charts, like the amount of like constant fighting. So is it, is it being supported by, um, outside entities? So is the it Burma being, army? Yeah. Um, they're, I don't think they're directly supported. So the, the Burma army controls the, the economy, they control sure. everything, but they do buy weapons and things from Russia and China, for example. Right. So they just bought the Burma army just bought like five or six more Russian MIGs. And so like when we're out there, um, you can, yeah, yeah, there's like Russian MiGs flying over you, dropping bombs on places. And you're like, oh, hopefully they don't drop on me. So, and then the Burma army, they make their own weapons. They make their own ammo. Right. So they're like, they're like a military government. They're, right. they're like a military state. Yeah. And so they're oppressing the, how, the people. How did, how did you go from 
I guess, you know, helping Middle Easterners or, or when I yeah. say Middle Eastern, it's like you're, you're specifically involved in Iraq and mm-hmm. then now you're going to pivot, go to, you know, Burma. Yeah. Like why go from one to the other? Is it more mm-hmm. of like, you're just going wherever, uh, what we'll call it, the, the uh, developing world war zones. Mm-hmm. Like why Burma, not Ukraine? I'm mm-hmm. just like, I, it's an obvious question. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I'd worked in Iraq for mm-hmm. for um, like 90 days, but that was right toward the end of ISIS. ISIS was still there for like another year or so until they yeah. finally cleaned them all up. Um, so there wasn't this as much of an opportunity to go there to, to kind of do the work that we're doing. Also, when I was in, um, I spent... Um, Spent like a month and a half in Thailand mm-hmm. um, after I had been uh, after after I'd been hit. Basically, just trying to get myself back in shape and just you know get spend a lot of time doing kickboxing. So I started oh, doing, doing a bunch of Muay Thai kickboxing. Muay Thai, Muay Thai, Muay Thai. Yeah. So I was doing I was doing Muay Thai kickboxing for like a month. So sorry, cup. What's about the cup? Oh, that's what he come. That's my language. That's, it. Yeah. that's all I know. That's my language. Yeah. I know. Hello. And, yeah, I was like, and thank I, you. I went to Thai. Yeah. I was okay. Like, I was a like six month. Uh, oh, you did, oh, you yeah, did the six did, month? Yeah. Yeah. Did, so um, I've never been to Thailand I did. because I went from Thai language school <laughs> to, you know, basically 9-11 and then into the Middle East. I never went to Thailand. I did three months of Tagalog, Filipino. Nice. And then, yeah, went, yeah. And then went straight to Afghanistan. So and I did made like, sense. And I did like six <laughs> trips to the Philippines. So I oh, was really? like my first actual like no shit combat rotation was in the Philippines. Mm. And like, no technically kidding. there's no combat there, but we yeah. tried. So yeah, we didn't actually. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Old Abu Sayyaf. Well, yeah. This thing. Classic. Um, where's that? Where's that knife that we had out the other day? Oh, it's right here. Yeah. Yeah. So this Filipino, oh, Filipino uh, commandos. Yeah, the Filipino commandos. Oh, that's great, man. Yeah, isn't that, that fucking? Isn't oh, that that's, awesome? That's so cool. Yeah, it was like such a fucking cool trip. I was telling this story yeah. the other day. I was like, the first time I ever got shot at was actually in the Philippines. I was taking a shit, <laughs> and like some communists, <laughs> some communists were out and about doing their thing. And yeah. I was like, I don't think, I, I think they just thought we were like standard Filipino army guys. They didn't actually necessarily know that I was like, you know, round eye Magoo, you know? Yeah, there. yeah. And I saw the brush like popping like out next to my- Oh, no kidding. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, you're like, was what like, is that? Well, yeah, exactly. That's like, strange. it was like, this feels what, funny. What, what is that? What, <laughs> and then it, what felt like a long time was probably mm-hmm. only like literally like, maybe a second and a half. Exactly. It felt like yeah. a long time. And I was yeah. like, wait, that's what that is. Oh, and so wow. I kind of rolled off to the side. And my yeah. buddy started laughing and he was like laughing at me. I was taking oh, a that's shit. Too funny. And they went and rolled him up. And that's then I got this little, this little, this uh, little <laughs> doohickey as a reminder. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. Combat veteran. <laughs> Count it. <laughs> Count it. Count it. Counts. <laughs> Write them up. Write them yeah, up for the exactly. award. There you yeah. go. So that's you go great. from Iraq yeah, so I, so I spent uh, I spent like uh, like a month in 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 Thailand doing doing Muay Thai, and I was yeah. wor- I was where at um, in uh, May Rim. Oh, sorry, okay. yeah, May Rim. It's it's right outside of uh, Chiang Mai. Yeah, there's a there's a guy um, Chris Smith. He's a former Marine. He's half Thai, half American. He has mm-hmm. a gym out there called Jim Bangarang. Oh yeah, um, and it's, yeah, so it's yeah. outside of the city. Yeah, and it's 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 fantastic. So they train actual like Thai fighters and stuff yeah. like that. But you can go there and and uh, and train, and and it's a really good really good setup. So while I was there. Um, there were some guys from Burma heard that I was there and they basically, Hey, we want to meet with you because we like they, at the time they were kind of in the middle of a ceasefire. The guys from this Karen mm-hmm. tribe, they were in the middle of a ceasefire with the Burma army, but then the Burma army just used that ceasefire time to go attack yeah. the Rohingya. And like, they like push like a million Rohingya out of, out of the country. So 
bad stuff's going on, but they basically, they realized that they were about to get attacked again. They realized that the fighting was about to kick off again. This was in 2000, uh, late 2017, early 2018. And so they were like, Hey, can you come help us prepare for like, we know this war is going to pop off. So yeah. I, I met these guys and, um, through, through some of the other volunteers I'd worked with in, in Iraq. And, um, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I was kind of looking for like, what's my next mission? What am I going to do? Go do. So I spent like six months living in the jungle by myself with, uh, with, um, yeah, with these Karen dudes going from village to village. I just needed to learn what was going on, figure out the situation, and I uh, eventually was able to start my organization. And uh, so now I work there a ton. Um, as far as Ukraine, we actually did go to Ukraine. I was in Ukraine in, uh, I guess, what was it 2022? Mm-hmm. When the when the Russians were still, I was in Kiev when the Russians were still advancing on Kiev. So I was actually there um, setting up medical stuff because we thought that the Russians were going to overrun the overrun the city so and, and potentially surround it. So I was actually there. Um, for, for a short while, but we, we, we chew, we, we work specifically in Burma, um, because there's a huge need there. Not mm-hmm. a lot of people are helping there. It's a very difficult environment to work in. Um, like if you want to go to Ukraine, that's fine. There's like thousands and thousands of people in Ukraine and that's great. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. But though you can go to Ukraine, you can drive across, you, as soon as you yeah. get across the border in Ukraine, like you can take like a luxury train, like almost to the, like ha- halfway through the country. And then you can like drive in a Mercedes yeah. anywhere you want to in the country. Right. Um, granted it's su- still super dangerous. Burma's not like that. You're in the hills. You're in yeah. the jungle. It's Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So you need guys who have the staying the the ability to stay. The guys who have the ability to to work in that environment. Um, so that's one of the places where we work um, heavily. Um, and so as far as as far as my role within there, I typically spend most of my time uh, working like at the front lines. So what we do is we're training the guys on medical stuff, um, and then we're also helping the the locals. Um, a bit, a bit of advising on, hey, how do you, how do you deal with these incursions that happen? So what'll happen is the Burma Army, they'll have, they'll sort of do a clearance operation, yeah, but they're going to come in and start slaughtering people. And so, how do you respond? These people can't all run away into the jungle mm-hmm. because, like, now you have nothing. Now you, now you have no food. Like they're right. subsistence farmers, yeah. so they stay there and then they run away when the Burma Army comes and they go back to their homes. And so one of the things the Burma Army will do, they'll come in, they'll clear a village, sometimes burn it down, sometimes not, and then they'll put landmines in these villages to prevent the villagers from coming back. And of course, just Murphy's law, 99% of the time people stepping on landmines, it's kids, yep. you know? Um, so that kind of stuff's going on. And um, so, I'm, I, and there's still a lot of like ongoing operations and things that are happening. Um, so we are there to protect the refugees and people who are running. Uh, so I can't go into too much detail. I'm happy to tell you no, I, everything. Let's pause there. Cause ongoing. I need to piss. That sounds good. And Me too. Let's, let's come back. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, you're talking about what you, what you do specifically, yeah. Like, and then, kind of like what the organization does, and then differentiating oh, between the two. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what I what I what I do is I pretty much spend a lot of my time on the on the on the frontline areas, um, doing setting up the medical training and stuff like that. Again, advising people on how to sort of deal with these uh, incursions and such. And the the other thing too that we do is we bring in uh, radios. We set up a a, a basically a early warning network is what we call like it. A repeater system or not even a repeater system. Yeah. It's literally just a bunch of radios. Everyone's on the same frequency and they talk to each other. Cause what'll happen is the Burma army, they'll come in, they'll attack a village and the villagers run away, but sometimes they run right into another Burma army unit or Got they it. don't know where to go or they don't know that it's coming till it's too late. And, um, so we put in all these radios so they can all communicate with each other and avoid, avoid these massive attacks and massive, you know, atrocities and stuff that happen. So, so why is, <clears throat> why, why is nobody helping like outside of like, um, 
So I think there, there's there's several there's several elements to it. On the, on the governmental level, I understand why everybody like why foreign governments can't get too involved directly. Why? Um, the reason for that is because you're dealing now with like Russia, China, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you can't send in like you, you're going to send in troops into Burma. It's going to be Vietnam all over again. Right. Um, so you can't directly like send troops in. They should be sending aid, in my opinion. They should be sending aid. Um, to the to the tribes that are constantly under attack, and I think there was a bill that was just recently passed. I think it's called the Burma Act mm-hmm. uh, in Congress to to start sending. I think I call it technical support to all the different groups who are fighting against the Burma Army. There's massive amounts of sanctions, um, you know, from pretty much every civilized country except for Russia and China, of course. Um, but everyone has sanctions on them, so everyone's kind of doing what they can. the The thing with um, with Burma, or even the frustration around, like why why don't why don't more people do more? And I care. A lot because like my, my wife's actually from the, the tribe that that I'm helping. Oh really? Yeah, she's a her family is, are uh, are refugees living in Canada. So she came to Canada when she was like ten. So totally Western, but um, still speaks the language. And that's actually I met her in the jungle. She was there working uh-huh. at the at the clinic, right. um, and that's where I met her. But um, there's 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 really not much there's really not much that you can do other than send in troops. Mm-hmm. And so the the sanctions are there. All that stuff's there. Oh, uh, but I think my point was, when it comes to the um, people and the media and, and people talking about it, yeah, I, I get the frustration sometimes. So, like, we put a lot of stuff on our on our Instagram showing stuff that we have uh, videos and videos and photos that we have personally taken or that our teams have taken. Um, so we're we're not sharing other people's content. Just the stuff, just where we're involved, and lots of injuries, stuff like that. Um, so a stronghold rescue on like Instagram and Facebook and all that. It's just at stronghold at, rescue. At stronghold rescue. Okay. Um, and you know, there's, there's, there's a million conflicts going on. You know, Africa's constantly falling apart. Mm-hmm. There's tons of stuff going on in South America. Burma's just one country in Asia. Middle East is still going crazy. Ukraine's going crazy, right? So there's, there's so many different conflicts that are happening. I, I, I don't, I personally don't get mad that like, like, why isn't Fox news and CNN talking about what's going on in Burma? It's like, well, cause if you talk about what's going on in Burma, then you also have to talk about every single country in Africa that's going through something at the moment. And, and in South America, mm-hmm. right? So it's it it is tough. Um, so we're there to sort of fill the gap as much as we can. Um, but I'm under no impression that it's like you know the entire world community needs to you know stop what they're doing and and come and help necessarily. I, I would love it if they did, but um, it's not um, it's not realistic. You know, it's just not realistic because you're gonna go get involved. If you go if you send troops into Burma, it's just gonna be you know, Vietnam, Vietnam all over again. And then you got to deal with all the different countries around the border. You've got Thailand, India, China, uh, Laos, you know, Bangladesh, like all these different countries on the border. So it's, it's not, it's not so simple. No. And I I can see that. I can see how you have multiple different countries and then you have tribes that are also outside of the country. What I would say is inside borders outside of what I would say that the, the, the conventional, um, country confines, right? Mm-hmm. So you have tribal loyalty, you have country loyalty, you've got multiple different mm-hmm. uh, power struggles specifically related to even externals. And then you have Russia, China, the United States. you get so many different competing interests and that's what mm-hmm. happens in some of these areas where you've got a lot of competing interests. Whereas like if you went to Mexico City, mm-hmm. like you're dealing with the cartels. Right. That's kind of what you're dealing with. Yep. Right. So you're not dealing with, you're dealing with the Mexican government with. Right. It's, it's fairly cut and dry. Yeah. It's not easy, but it's fairly simple to understand. Right. You're like, okay, you got cartels, government, a little bit of mix between the two sometimes, sure. but 
that's pretty much that's pretty much what you got. Yeah, exactly. But everyone speaks Spanish, right? Yeah, yeah. everybody speaks Spanish, and it's in everybody's selling drugs for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah, exactly. So you go to, you go to Burma. So we even talked about the drug problem, which I don't. I'm not even. I don't even know anything about that really. Yeah. But, so you know, Burma's part of the Golden Triangle, man. They've got. That, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. So then so you have there's drugs and stuff flowing through that place like crazy. I mean, the Golden Triangle. It, 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 that's that's what it's most famous for. I would say yeah. outside of this conflict is because of that region, yeah. which is mainly the, the heroin. I think was the export out of there for most of the, like most of it, right? Yeah, and they still they still um, they have a form of crystal meth. They call it yaba. Mm-hmm. And so you want to talk about you know throwbacks to World War II. So the Burma Army, um, from what I understand, about fifty percent of the guys in the Burma Army take yaba, which is crystal meth. It's like a pill form of crystal meth, and they go. They always say yaba yaba, and they make this little symbol with their with their finger, showing it showing you the size of the pill. Um, so they take these pills and they put them under their tongue or on their tongue, and it it makes them like uh, it makes them sort of super soldiers for a short amount of time. They oh, can, it's like they the can, Nazi, uh, just like the Nazis yeah, did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amphetamine. So these guys will take this stuff, and I've seen it. I've seen it in combat. I've seen it in battle there in in really? in Burma, where dudes. I'm like that guy. Like, what is like? What am I looking at right now? Why is this guy not afraid? Why is yeah. he not? He's not acting like a normal human being. Right. And like, that's not courage. Like that dude's on drugs. That dude is straight up on drugs. Yeah. And uh, you know, sometimes it it, it benefits us because we're able to you know because he does something dumb and we can then protect people easier. But um, yeah. So it's it's a it's a very it's a very strange thing. And then you have all the different countries around. They're benefiting from the they're betting they're benefiting from the drug trade. They're benefiting. They have deals. A lot of them, all these foreign countries that surround the that surround Burma, they have like under the cover, under the table deals with the with the Burma government, with the mm. Burma army. And so, what what I've seen, my, my my own personal two cents on it is, it seems to me that like a lot of the governments around the country, they're just kind of waiting to see over the last two years, like is the Burma army going to fall? Because it's getting to the point where they might. Right. And so they don't want to choose sides just yet until they see who's who, whoever's going to come out on top. That's who they're going to work with. Who's going to come I, I, from your opinion? Like who comes out on top if the Bernie if if if, if they fall, mm-hmm. the Burma who, army that they yeah, fall. If who the comes Burma out on top? army falls, like who who well, comes out on top? Potentially, what ends up happening is now you have a power struggle between the different. Um, you have a power vacuum, right? So then yeah. you have a a power struggle between the different. Um, Ethnic ethnic armed groups. Who are who, the who are the biggest players in the ethnic? Um, you're going to deal with like the the Karen, mm-hmm. um, the Kachin, the Shan, the Wa. Uh, the Rohingya are a very large tribe, but they don't have much of a um, um, much of a military mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, and so you're so you've got like several big different players. And How they, big there's the populations. In the I don't UC know. Now? I don't. I don't right. know the numbers on on that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but the thing is, like, if they if all the if all the ethnic minority tribes work together, right. Then they can easily defeat the Burma army. What, what's what's going on right now is they're trying to. M- most people, what they're trying to do is set up sort of a, a federalist state where each of the different um, uh, ethnic minorities have their territory, mm-hmm. and that's it. Everybody contributes to um, sort of a central sort of federal government, but everyone has independent states within within the within the country. Right. Um, that's sort of the the idea of what, kind of what they're fighting for once the Burma army goes away. And they want to set up a democracy, so you have some sort of a representative democracy where each of the tribes sends representatives to, um, you know, to the central to the central government to make decisions and stuff in the future. But again, Burma army has to fall first, right? And how I think, do you get, I think how do you get will. in there? Like, can you uh, say that's no, you, that's that's not I, I don't I can't talk yeah. about publicly um, how we get in there. Um, right. It's not, it's nothing super nefarious or no, no. I, super I, was, cool. I was just more more yeah. interested in it. And if you could talk about in the context of like when is there. Well, I say I'll, I'll a surrounding say, country that's actually supportive of 
Um, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the part I can't really talk about Got too it. much. But um, what I can say is like anytime I go into Burma, um, I'm linking up with the, the, the tribe that controls that mm-hmm. portion of the border. So I'm going into friendly territory with people who want me there. Who right. are, yeah. Who are the, so I, I meet up with that, that government, I always go say hi to the, say hi to the leaders on the civilian and the military side, let them know exactly what we're doing and, and whatnot. And we work very closely with them, um, the ethnic minority tribal leaders. Mm. And so we have like full access anywhere. We want to go anything we want to do where they, they want the help and they need the help. And so we're able to go in and, and have some pretty pretty marked impacts um, in in these areas where we're working. Yeah. So, do you see yourself transitioning out of of that area of the world eventually, or do you see yourself saying, "Well, I'm here and I'm committed till the end"? Um, so that, that's a that's a tough question, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a, it's a question I ask myself. So it's a good question. Um, so, like I said, I'm uh, my wife is is from the tribe mm-hmm. that I'm that yeah, I'm particularly yeah. helping. So, for the rest of my life, in some way, shape, or form, I will be helping there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope it's in more of a peaceful um, capacity in the in the future because like I'm kind of kind of burned out on the <laughs> on the fighting. I'm like I'm kind of over it, uh, getting shot at and stuff. Yeah, you know? I think that's yeah. a, like that's a that's a that's another question, which is like, are you are you sick of getting shot at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm over it. I'm like it's it's not cool anymore. It's not fun anymore. It's like I'm I'm good. Um, you check the box. You're, I, so yeah, I've checked the box. Yeah. Um, again, we can talk offline too about some more of the other stuff. Um, hopefully I'll be able to talk about it once the, once the, the conflict ends within the next few years, hopefully. Um, but, um, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm t- for me, like I'm not there for adventure. Like right. there's, there's, I'm very much a homebody. Like, um, I would love to, you know, you got a beautiful officer. Like I would love to like, just go work at an office, um, and, um, you know, work, work on, work on cool projects and stuff like that and know where I'm sleeping that night and know where I'm going to be three months from now. So it's, it's very, um, like what I do is very isolating. It's very, Lonely is not the right word, but it's like, I'm out there on my own. And I, I do have a small team of guys that, that I work with and travel with, and they're awesome dudes, um, all, all veterans and such. And, um, but it's still, even as like leading the organization and it's like, we're, we're out there. No one's, no one's there to help us. So it, it does get, um, yeah, it's difficult and it takes a, take, takes a, a mental and, uh, takes a big mental toll on me. Um, as far as, as far as working in Burma, like we'll always continue working there. I think, and for mm-hmm. even, in, even if, even if the war completely ends, it's like, cool, we'll just switch to development and, 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 and that kind of stuff, which we're already doing a lot of that right now. We're building some roads and things. Um, but like right now, my organization, we actually work in other countries as well as needed. So right now I actually have a, a three man team in Mozambique living in the bush with the, uh, park rangers. Actually just last night, they sent me photos. They were able to roll up a couple of, uh, um, uh, illegal, uh, I think, I don't know if they were poachers or fishermen or what they were doing. Right. But, so yeah, they're out there living with the, with the, with the Rangers for, for like a month, month and a half, training them up, uh, doing, yeah, basically doing FID, helping the, helping out the anti-poaching Rangers and such. Um, and yeah, so it's like, we're, we're, we're involved, we're involved in, in other places and, and whatnot. Um, and I, you know, in, in the future, it's like, I don't know exactly how much longer I will do sort of the front line. Yeah you know, living on, living on the front. Um, but it's tough too, because like, I see the guys, the guys that I work with, like they, they don't get to leave. So there's that guilt. There's, mm-hmm. I have that guilt where, man, if I walk away, I know that those guys are still there. Like even coming back to this, keeping coming back to the States for the last six months, you know, I got married and, um, been, um, traveling around, you know, going on podcasts and, you know, raising, raising awareness and support for the organization and such. Those guys are still out there getting shot at. They're still mm-hmm. getting bombed. I'm getting photos like, um, over the last couple of months, like two, two different patients have come in. I was like, Oh, I know that guy. 
you know, and he, that guy's, you know, like messed up pretty bad. Like I lost a leg another guy had been shot through the chest, I think, you know, I was like, Oh, I know those guys. And so like, they're there, they, they, they can't leave. And so how do you, so, so, so the real question is like, okay, how do you, when you go there and you work in these places, how do you have a, a marked impact for the long term? And that's why the, the, the model that we do at Stronghold is the charity with dignity, uh, pro, um, approach of enabling the locals, building up their capabilities, because whether it's a year from now or whether it's 20 years from now, I'm not going to be able to go in there and do everything. Um, and I'm only one man. I can't, I can't do that much. Even my, my, my team, my team of guys, we do a lot of stuff, but we, we we're not as good as 50 locals mm -hmm. who can do stuff. So everything we do, it's much, everything we do is about enabling the locals. It takes longer. It's more frustrating. Um, it's less fun. It's less sexy because you don't get to be out there doing the stuff, right? right? Like you're not the one like treating the wounded. You're teaching someone else how to treat the wounded, right? Um, but it's so much more effective. And so all these patients that are that are being treated, all the stuff that um, if people go to our Instagram, look at all these like patients and stuff, you're not going to see any white people. You're not going to see pictures of white people um, because we're not there. We're not there at this exact moment, but all of our programs, like we have those guys that are treating these patients, like they're on our staff, mm -hmm. they're on our salary. And they're organized and trained by us and they're running it completely, completely without us. And so my goal is every, every program that we do at Stronghold is to build up the capability of the locals. And so when, when things go bad and they go bad often in these places that people are able to stand on their own, um, in the, in the article that I wrote for, uh, coffee or die, I talked about one village. So it's juxtaposing two different scenarios that happened when I was there in one village, uh, the Burma army came in, massacred a bunch of people, burned the bodies. I put the video, it's in the article. And then in the second half of the article, I talk about a month later, the Burma army came in and a much larger force attacked multiple villages, but the response was completely different. Nobody was like several civilians were killed just by mortar fire and things like that. But the civilians, they started treating their own people and evacuating their own people and they were communicating to get out of there. And then the, the local defense force guys were able to come up there. Some of them were killed in action. Um, a bunch of them were wounded, but they treated their own guys, evacuated them to an ambulance boat, which then mm -hmm. took them to an, a truck ambulance. And there's advanced medical care and there's oxygen tanks and they were able to get stabilized and all of that stuff happened. And, and then as, as thousands of people lose their home and run, run into the jungle, they were given food and, and medicine and shelters. All of that stuff, the, the, the civilians treating each other and evacuating their people, talking on the radios, the village, uh, the village defender guys who had proper tourniquets and um, Skedco litters and radios and were able to evac their guys to ambulances. All those guys have been trained by us. We'd been there for months earlier. We'd been there for a month prior and had trained all this, all this stuff up. And so the best part of that story is we weren't even in the country. When that, when that particular attack happened and then everyone responded beautifully and saved a lot of lives. And that's why, again, I, I talk about that in, in the article. Um, and that's, that's really the gold standard of what it is that we want to do. So right now we've got guys, like I said, in Mozambique training the, training the Rangers. Well, that's great. That's, it's fun. The guys are obviously having a good time out there working with some good dudes. Um, but the measure of success is going to be, okay, a month and a half from now when our guys are out of there, do we get, do we get messages from the Rangers saying, right. Hey, this equipment and this training that you gave us, Hey, we were able to, you know, catch this, this poacher who was also smuggling weapons illegally. Cause it's all the same thing. Right. And, um, the guys are going to do a, a development project. They're going to help, um, stock a school with, with, um, supplies and, and things like that in, in this village in Mozambique where they're, where they're currently at. So, um, 
the the goal is the goal is for us to be able to and for me, for me myself personally to be able to kind of take a step back at some point because I'd like to have a family I do want to right. uh, step back at some that, point that would be my question is you know as you start to look into the future what what is it what's your future look like you know that's a that's a that's a very tough question and I don't know the answer to that yeah. I don't know the answer because um, well you, obviously you've been through the you've been through the process of mm. transitioning out of the military and starting a new thing I've kind of been through that mm. but I'm still in a way I'm still I'm still operational I'm still in the field I'm yeah, still doing this stuff doing so it's it. still I'm still in that mm. I'm still in that world and so yeah what does it look like when you when you step away from things I think in, in some capacity I'll always be involved in stronghold mm. and we'll continue we'll continue it long into the future and I'll still go overseas and stuff but I'm not going to go for you know, at some point, I'm going to have kids and stuff. I don't plan on going over for six months at a time every year uh, to go to like frontline locations and things like that. So I'm not. Do you not, see yourself really like sure. raising a family in Wisconsin? Um, in Wisconsin, but then we also too. It's it's important to my wife and I that we um, show our kids kind of where where they came from. Mm -hmm. So that side of the family, like that the the, the Burma side of the mm -hmm. family, the Karen tribe side of the family. So it's like, yeah, we'll take our kids back to where, where it's safe and where it makes sense to, so they can reconnect with their roots, see where they're from, and continue to help their and, you know, forever, basically my entire life, I'll be helping in some way, shape or form. But then what am I going to do? Um, if I'm not doing that full time, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that yet, but it's, uh, it's definitely a question that's on my mind, but for at least the next couple of years, I'm, I'm fully front front side focused on, on right. what we're doing at the moment. How, yeah. how old were you when you joined the Navy? Uh, I was technically 17 when I signed the paperwork and I went to basic when I was 18. Yeah. And then did you go straight to buds? Yeah, I went straight to buds. Um, so I went through, I was, I was actually, I turned 19, like a week before hell week, I think. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, so now I'm, and I got out of the Navy when I was 24 and went to Iraq. So I'm uh, 31, turned 31 this year. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I've been, been going, been going for a little, little while, but not, not forever. I mean, and that's the other thing too, is like other guys have done much longer careers and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's similar. I mean, I think about it like, you know, I'm 46 and there are guys that have been doing it before me. Right. So it's like. I, oh, not the dudes that are like still in. Oh yeah, yeah. I, oh, know, wow. I know guys that are like still on the trail, right? It's like guys that are still working at the agency, still doing mm. fun, what they call fun stuff. And I'm like, I was, I was literally texting a buddy of mine that, like three or four weeks ago. I forget. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I was just uh, in an ambush about 15 minutes ago. You know, doing my thing. I was like, <laughs> you're 50 years old, dude. We've been doing this for like 23 years. Like, yeah, he's yeah. been doing it for like since he was 27. Wow. I'm like. You know, hey man, like I'm just giving you not not sage advice, but maybe like hang it up, bro. Like no, no, no offense, but yeah. some guys can't hang it up. They'll never be able to hang it up. Yeah, that's the that's the thing for me. Like I know, I, I, so guilt will keep me going a little longer <clears throat> than I should. I I know, no doubt. Um, like survivor's guilt and yeah. and wanting to help that will keep me going a little longer than I should probably. But for me, I'm like I said, there's it's I don't get. Uh, there, there's no like sense of adventure that comes mm -hmm. with it. I'm, that's like, I'm, I'm like, dude, I'm good. Like, I don't need to do this anymore for, for, for me. Yeah. So for me, it's a matter of service. It's like, how do you walk away from a situation when you know, Hey man, no one's here to help. So if you go, if, if I go in and help, if I bring my team in and help and we go in for somewhere for three months, four months and set up and set up shop and basically do FID in this area, I know for sure that villages will be, will, will not be destroyed. Right. Lives will be saved. Um, lots of lives, not just one or two here and there. It's like, no, no, we're going to save a ton of lives. We're going to keep entire villages from being destroyed. How, if no one's taking your place, 
how do you walk away from that? Because it's mm-hmm. one thing walking away from the military because I remember Everybody leaving the teams. Place. Like, yeah. yeah, I was like, I remember like when I left the teams, I was yeah. like, all right, I'm out of here on Friday. And I was like, all right, bye, man. Like, you know, like, there'll be another team guy. Like, exactly, exactly. <laughs> there, that's the one, that's the one shortage. There, there's not one of in the context of recruiting more of like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're going to be okay. Yeah, exactly. So they're always yeah. going to be fully stocked. They're going to have yeah. plenty of guys to go do what they do. So it's, it's tough. Yeah. How, how do you, what is the end game? At what point do you say enough? At what point does some, do I look at somebody who's asking for my help and I go, oh, sorry, I can't. Right. And, and I, and I think back to the, like that guy, uh, next to the tank who I had to leave to die and he did right. die. Um, you know, I'd made a lot of decisions in my life to save someone's life, but I'd never made a decision at that point to let somebody just die. And I had made that decision at that moment. And so, well, why did I make that decision? And it was because, well, it was for self-preservation because like, I can't save you number one. And number two, I'm going to die if I try. Mm-hmm. So in that situation, it was easy to walk away. So I think in some, in some, in some form that'll, that's what'll happen with me as I'll, I'll, uh, I'll walk away at some point if I, I'm sure my wife will let me know if I'm getting a little too crazy. Yeah. You know? they, they, they tend to do that for you. Like, <laughs> level but set you with know. you a little bit. Yeah. Uh, wh- when did you go through what you would diagnose your, you diagnose yourself, uh, operator syndrome? Yeah. So that's, that's definitely a good thing to, to, to jump into. So, um, I left the, left the Navy in, uh, 2017 started doing the I did the Iraq stuff in 2017 uh, 2018 2019 um, was working in um, working in Burma and then in 2020 um, the double double knockout punch of the uh, uh, of COVID and then I also had like a, a back injury just from like mm-hmm. training I, I tweaked it like pretty bad so I was down hard for a few months um, so during that time um, I really my my morale and everything just tanked so at the time the organization we were bringing in almost no money. Um, and we were, the, what we were bringing in, we were constantly sending overseas. Cause again, we had trained, um, we had trained the local guys who were, who were still able to send stuff to, at the time, Venezuela and, uh, Burma. Mm-hmm. And, um, but like on a personal level, like I just started to completely fall apart. Um, and so during this time, um, I just started, it was like, I had been going since I was whatever, seven, 16, 17, um, trying to, trying to do the, to, to, to do the seal thing. And then. I just hadn't stopped. I just hadn't stopped. And I, and I, um, eventually just, it just kind of smacked me in the face and put me down hard on a mental level, which is just something I, I didn't fully understand. Um, I got extremely depressed. Um, yeah, like, uh, gained like a hundred pounds literally. Um, and went through this horrible, like horrible time, um, in my, in, in my life. So this is like in, during 2020, like late 2020 into, into 2021, um, and then I was able to sort of pull myself out of it in a way, um, by, uh, I, I went to, I went to Florida mm-hmm. and I, I drove, I drove down there in one shot from Wisconsin to Florida. It was like 17 hours or something. Um, and then I, yeah, I got a, I got a hotel on the beach, top floor, just staring at the ocean. I just sat there for a month and I stared at the ocean cause I was like, I don't know. I was like, what the hell's the matter with me, man? I can't get my head right. Nothing I do. Like I'm addicted. I'm clearly addicted to something. I'm a hundred pounds overweight what the hell's the matter with me, man? Like I have people who are relying on me. Um, I'm supposed to be a tough, you know, seal and I can't kick this thing. Like what is, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with my head? And I sat there for a month and I stared at the ocean and eventually like, I just felt my stress levels just yeah, every day just come down 1%, 1%, 1%, 1%. And eventually it's like my head just, my, 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 my mind's just sort of healed itself. I don't know how to explain it. It just sort of healed itself. And then I got my mind right. 
and started the journey of losing a hundred pounds. And eventually at that point, then I was able to start building the organization again. And so now, you know, now we're, you know, this last year we brought in like over, you know, a, a couple million dollars in support. And so wow. we have employees and we're out there able to, <laughs> you know, saving tons of lives, but I went through this very, very dark period. And the only way I could describe what I was going through was sort of operator syndrome. Yes. I'd seen tr- like tr- air quotes, traumatic things, but like every soldier sees traumatic things like, and not that they shouldn't affect you or don't affect you, but it was like, I, don't feel like they affected me or they shouldn't have affected me that much. And I just, it, it put me down so hard, but it was, it was the constant lifestyle. It was the mm-hmm. constant stress. It was the no breaks, no stopping and throw on top of that, all the, all the craziness of, of the war. We talked earlier about the bad dreams, all of that stuff, you know, and, and in Iraq too, I mean, you know, we're seeing just like dead kids, like constantly, like that stuff, that stuff messes with your head. You see a baby on the side <laughs> of the road with its head bashed in and its brain hanging out. And you're like, yeah, like you're not gonna you're not gonna walk away from that and just go okay, you know. You don't you don't easily recover from those things, and yeah. uh, you know they they. I, I was explaining this, and I think I've talked about it. Like it's like Iraq's kind of with you forever. Like for me, it's like it's the first war experience, and mm. it's the most prominent. I was there for five years. Wow. And you know, I was there from the invasion all the way through uh, 2009 when it was the sofa, and then I left in 2009. Basra was the last place I was at, but um, yeah, it's always with me. It's never, it's never going to be gone. You know, Afghanistan's yeah. just kind of like, yeah, that was that was like the the second party I went to that night. You know what okay. I mean? Like, <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> you don't remember that one all much. <laughs> we don't we know where the party started. We don't know how it ended. You know, like we don't, don't talk know. about that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And. Um, it makes it harder. I think. I think uh, definitely for a lot of guys, with, where they, they, they want to talk about how you know how did you recover? How did you move past it? How do you continue to move past it? What are some of the things that you're you're doing now that are helping that help you? Yeah, um, I think first and foremost, the 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 first thing is you have to realize that there's nothing wrong with you because there's something wrong with you, right? Mm-hmm. So. If you go into war, if you go into these places and you go into this stuff, it's like, dude, you're going to be affected, right? And so, I, th- I think that there, I think a lot of guys sort of have uh, guilt or shame or whatever, maybe whatever it might be, because it's like, oh, I'm not tough, not tough enough. Like, why, why, why am I having nightmares over this thing and and whatnot? It's like the first thing you just have to realize is like, dude, it's going to affect you, and make make peace with that. And the simple reality is, when you when you go to war, you you come back different. Like th- there's a price to be paid, even if you didn't, you know, spill blood, uh, like if you, even if you were never wounded, right? Like you still have, there's still a price that's paid for like what you did, what you saw and everything that you were involved in. Right. And like, you're gonna, you're still going to have to sort of pay that price mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. It, that you don't go into that and come out of it unscathed and just go like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go whatever. Like it never happened. It's like, no, it's, it sticks with you. That's one. The second thing is guys bottle it up so much, you know, guys just like, you know, uh, they, they, they won't talk about it unless they're drunk or, yeah. or they, or they just don't deal with it. And it's like, dude, it's like, you're, you're not weak because you're saying, yeah, man, I saw this thing and it like messed me up pretty bad. Dude, if you bottle it up, it's eventually going to come back and bite you in the, in the butt a thousand times worse than if you had just dealt with it right away. It's like, it's like finding something rotten and like, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, dude, cut away the rotten portion. And that way it doesn't infect the whole thing. You know, like I have a, a buddy of mine who I was in Iraq with, we were going through an EMT course um, and there was, we did, we did a training scenario where there was a, a woman pinned up against a, a tree with a car. It was just a, it was a, just a, 
a, a training medical scenario. And so she was screaming the whole time, just play acting, like, where's my baby? Where's my baby? And she kept on screaming, where's my baby? So we ran through this drill and we did a little uh, debrief on it. And we're with, just with uh, civilians for the most part. And so my buddy, he just, he walks off and sits behind a tree and just starts weeping. And like, like one of the toughest dudes I know, former Marine, like really, just really, really good guy. Um, and he sits down behind a tree and he just starts weeping uncontrollably. And so I went and sat down next to him and I, I realized, cause I, you know, cause this woman's like screaming for her baby. And it's like, we had both been in Iraq together. He was one of the other, he was one of the other guys behind the, the tank, right. you know, I was shot and all that stuff. And yeah, it's like, so you, you, you don't deal with it. And all of a sudden it just, it just comes and just smacks you, uh, just smacks you straight across the face. So you got to deal with it. You got to talk about it. Um, I personally, actually, I even went to like the VA. It's like, <laughs> I hate the VA so much. Um, dude, I can't even explain. So I went to the VA and I was, you know, I was like, Hey, like I messed up. Like I got whatever I got, like, can I talk to somebody? And I went in and I did that and ended up, um, you know, just being this like Uber, uh, like Uber liberal lady who was telling me that basically I had a mental condition because of, uh, you know, we were talking about, we were, so I, I was in there trying to go through like cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. talking about just I've like- I've heard that works. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. And, and, I, and it's a, and in, in, in theory, it's like a really good idea. So we're yeah. going through that. And at some point, um, one of the works weeks we were going through, she's like, she's like uh, in what way do you feel physically unsafe? And I was like, well, actually, like, I really don't feel physically unsafe. Like, and I'm, this isn't me being cocky. It's like, yeah. like I'm a big, like 225 year old, like former seal. Like no one messes with me. Like I'm good. <laughs> yeah, like you're good. I'm good. Like yeah. I don't, I don't feel yeah. for my physical safety. And she's like, well, there has to be something. Well, at the time it was 2020 and like the, the BLM Antifa riots were yeah, going on in right. Wisconsin and like Kenosha, one of the places yeah. where they overran. I, I, I lived there when I was a kid. And then, um, the other one where the, the guy drove through the, uh, uh, there's a Christmas parade. Do you remember the guy drove oh, through a Christmas yeah. parade? That's yeah. in that's in Waukesha, uh, like two miles from where my parents live. Like two miles, so I was like there, you know, not not there physically, but it was like I'm from from this area. Um, this is where I grew yeah. up. This is where I grew up as a kid. Anyway, so I was like, well, you know, I guess I uh, I feel like unsafe that you know because I was like I don't want some some riot to come through my neighborhood because one had come through our neighborhood uh, like a, a a protest. To be fair, it was peaceful. They didn't they didn't do anything but it was like a BLM Antifa protest that had come through our, through our town. And we're like a suburban area. It doesn't make sense for them to be there. They were screaming like no justice, no peace. And they were like, this is the no peace part of no justice because like we need to make you people feel uncomfortable. That's what they were saying on the, on the, on the TV right. to the camera. Anyway. So I was like, well, yeah, that makes me feel unsafe, I guess. But she was like super uber liberal. And so she's basically started telling me that I was wrong <laughs> <laughs> that I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel unsafe, even though like all this, yeah. all this stuff is happening. And I was like, oh no, oh no, I can't, I was like, I can't talk with this woman anymore because right, right. she's going to start putting stuff on my record yeah. saying that I'm some crazy lunatic, yeah, right wing, whatever. I'm like, yeah, whoa, 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 no. Yeah. So I just, I, so I literally like, we were scheduled for the next week. I didn't message nothing. I just cold turkey. I was like, I stopped. I was like, I'm not talking to this lady anymore. Cause I, I want to talk about feeling not safe. It's like, I can't talk to this woman anymore because no. now she's now, yeah, she's now basically accusing me of being like some right wing lunatic. And I'm like, dude, yeah. no. No, no, no. That's not yeah. what's going on. That's not what's going on. I'm just, you know, I mean, I don't like riots. Like, I'm not, yeah, a, not a fan of riots. Yeah, yeah not know? a fan of riots in my neighborhood. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty easy to fucking figure out. Yeah, exactly. So just, just stuff like that. Um, but as far, as far as now, um, even now, like I'm still, I'm still in it and I'm still going and I'm still yeah. in, in combat. Like I know, I know by the end of this year or within the next probably two months from now, like I will be in heavy combat. Like I know this, no doubt. Um, because of where I'm going to go and what I got to do. And, you know, it's like, I've just- You mentally- carry a 
a weapon? Yeah, yeah, the, you the, do. The, yeah. The locals. If, okay. if the locals give me permission and they then give me a can. weapon, then I then I will. Yeah, absolutely. And I, they always do. <laughs> I think that would be very difficult. Like one of the things I would have a hard time with is like not being able to carry a weapon in some of those environments where yeah, like you 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 not. It's not even a matter of like necessarily like you defending yourself. It's a matter of having the ability to defend yourself. At, yeah. When the need arises. Yeah. And I think that's been a part of the the nonprofit visual the nonprofit visualization. Mm-hmm. So when you go to work for some of these nonprofits, well, hey, you're not going to be able to carry a rifle. So mm-hmm. good luck. Yeah. So well, the the thing is with us is like we're not going to um, like bring weapons or something sure. from overseas. Like because you can't. You're like can't. we've looked yeah. into it. We're like, hey, if we can, we will. Yeah. And we, we make no apology about that. It's like, yeah, like our guys are up on the front line. It's it's ex uh, special special ops guys. Spec ops. Yeah, so like we're we're out there um, on the front line. So it's guys who are competent; they know what they're doing. Um, I'm highly, highly selective of like who I allow to come out because right. I can't have dudes that are trying no to get way. their gun on, dude. Because no you, you wouldn't believe like the emails and messages and oh my God. DMs I get. Like, I guys, can't even imagine. Like, dude, it's it's yeah, fucking lunatics, right? So it's like, it's like guys like who want to go fight. And I'm like, no. Yeah. So like I've like very calm, professional, experienced guys who know what they're doing. Um, and yeah, so, so if the locals provide us with weapons, like, yeah, we'll absolutely carry weapons because it's like, guess what? I'm getting shot at too. And it's like, and I've, I've been in scenarios where it's like, I've had to take bad dudes out. Like even in Burma, like just a few months ago, like we're in fighting, nothing I can do about it. You gotta, you gotta take, take dudes out who are trying to kill you. So, or, or trying to kill other people. So, um, it happens. It's not our goal, but, um, it's either that or women and children get raped and murdered. And right. they and they pile their bodies, mm-hmm. and I have video of that. So it's I, one or the other. Is there ever a, a concern that you would be um, tried for war crimes? Tried for war crimes? Yeah, I, don't, I can't imagine I'd be tried for war crimes. No, I'm just, I'm just like by, I, by I who? No, I don't know. That's why I'm like, oh, because because like it, I'm not. Well, so okay, so that, that's you're a good non-affiliated. Question. Yeah, you're essentially a mercenary if you're like seen as one, right? So, yeah. So there's so it kind of comes down to um, oh, it comes down to a couple things. One is. If you're a mercenary, if you're being paid to be there, like if, mm. if the locals are paying for you to right, fight right. for them, now you're yeah, a mercenary. Yeah. Okay. We don't do that. We're there free of yeah. charge. We're there volunteers. My guys are paid. Like everyone on staff is paid. Right. We don't even accept volunteers, except if we're trying them out for a paid position. Um, so like, no, everyone's paid. Like I'm paid, but not by the locals. We're there to volunteer and help ourselves. Also, mm. we're there to protect people. And right. it's clear cut black and white situations. It's like, dude, honestly, like take me to court. That's fine. Like, and I'll just stand there. And it'll be like, yeah, they were trying to rape and murder these people. So right. we defended them. Like, what, what do you want me to do? So it's like, I have actually, if anything, I have a moral imperative to actually get involved mm-hmm. and defend these people. I can't walk away. I can't run away because I know exactly what's going to happen. Right. So um, there, there's that angle of it as well. Um, so it's then then the, the the final piece of that is precedent. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna try me for for stopping you know women and kids from getting raped and murdered. Okay. Well, then guess what? Now you have to. Now you have to try and accuse every dude who's volunteering in Ukraine right now, yeah, helping out the Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like yeah. th- the reality is like it's it's not it's not going to happen and it can't happen. And if they did happen, it's like bring it on, dude. Do you ever do you ever get uh, approached by um, foreign intel services to work for them specifically? No, we've no, we've never had anybody approach us uh-huh. about stuff like that. But again, we are a nonprofit, so any information that we do have is it's, like open to it's anybody. Open anyway. It's like open to yeah, anybody. Got it. Um, we've sent stuff specifically to like some certain time sensitive stuff we've sent to like us government, like Intel guys, and they can kind of run it up the, run it up the chain. 
Um, and we're, again, we're open about that. Yeah. So like, yeah, we'll, we'll give whatever we can to the FBI, CIA, sure. anybody, anything, anything that we see. Yeah. Does any, does any of the support come from like government entities? No, like no, actually. Is it no. all just individual donation? It's all individual donation. So we're a 501c3 nonprofit. <laughs> um, and so we actually have a, a kind of a unique, uh, fundraising model. So with a nonprofit, obviously most virtually all nonprofits subsist off of donations. What typically happens though is most most nonprofits they will go and they'll try to get grants, like mm-hmm. large grants, or they will try to link up with with wealthy people and try to get like large donations like from yeah. wealthy folks. And I'm like, I have I have some friends who are very, very wealthy and like they're my friends. And so I'm like, dude, I'm not gonna like it's just weird, you know, like if if I run an organization where I'm like, hey man, like that's cool. Like you want to give hundred grand, uh, whatever, you know. And if they did, that'd be great. But like, it, it's just it's just weird, and it's very. Um, I don't like having relationships with people, and I can't be sincere. You know, like you're trying to like use them for something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's weird. So anyway, when I started my organization, um, after the first like year or two of running it, I completely switched away from any trying to go for grants, trying to like get large donations, anything like that. And what we do is we basically have a Netflix subscription sort of model. So what we have is we have thousands of people who each give on average like $20 a month. Mm. And so that's how we're oh, that's able great. to raise millions yeah. a year mm-hmm. to go do this. And so what the, the reason it's so wonderful is on on the, on the on our end, it benefits us because I know six months from now, roughly how much money we're going to have. Yeah. I know two years from now, from now, roughly how much money we're going to have at a minimum. Where so we're able to build long term lasting projects like ambulances and things mm-hmm. like that, and I'm not tearing my hair out going, oh no, we have to shut down the ambulances in three months if I don't find some person to give me a bunch of money, right? right? The other thing is for the donor, we actually limit how much people can give when they sign up. We say uh, if people want to sign up, we say you know a minimum is like fifty cents a day or a dollar a day, so fifteen dollars a month or thirty dollars a month, right? And then there's like a seventy five cents a day, twenty dollars a month. So we limit people. We say you can't give more than um, uh, $30 a month mm. because we don't want you to, we don't want to, we don't want to take all your money. And guess what? If you have consistent. it in your budget, yeah, we want something mm-hmm. consistent, but we yeah. also want some, if you have a hundred dollars to give, that's great, man. Why don't you give, you know, give us 20 bucks a month mm-hmm. and go give $20 to another organization that you believe in and another organization, because you know, like that old proverb, like where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right. Mm-hmm. So like if people, people, even if you're just giving a little bit to these different organizations, like you're suddenly going to become more, much more aware of what's going on. Your heart is going to be in it and it's going to make a, for a much better life for you. Um, and so it's, it's, it's so much more consistent and we don't want to, the other thing too, uh, that I'm hypersensitive to a lot of the, the stories and stuff that I tell or like experiences that I have. And I've come on uh, podcasts and, and I, and I talk about the stuff that we do and some, some ones we go into like more stories and such. Mm-hmm people have an emotional reaction. They have an emotional reaction and they go, oh man, like I really, really want to help. And so in those moments, people are not thinking clearly. And so they're like, oh, I'm going to give, yeah, I want to give, I want to give a hundred bucks yeah. a month yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, so that's why we actually limit it too. We say, hey, like if you want to, if you want to sign up, sign up at 30 bucks a month. Because what I don't want to have happen is because we, we, for like the first, I don't know, the first like six months or maybe first year when I had this model set up, we didn't have the giving limit. I don't think for like the first, I don't know like six months or so. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, you would see people who would sign up and they're like, yeah, I want to give 150 bucks a month. And you're like, no, 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 no. Like that's a lot. That's a lot of money. So I never want there to ever be emotional manipulation. It's like, here's the ground truth. Here's what's going on. If you feel bad about it and there's a, a logical way that you can help us and you want to be a part of it, like if, if you can financially do that logically, great, sign up. And, and if not, dude, no sweat. And then the other thing too, is we get people every week because we have thousands of donors. 
we get people every week who are, who message us and say, Hey, I got to cancel my donation. I lost my job. I got, you know, whatever. Right. And, and they apologize. They're like, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. Right. But it's okay because it's, it's, it's easier. Like we're not like horribly like relying on that one individual. So we're able, or it's, it's less stressful for them because they know, Hey, it's like, it's only 20 bucks. I still feel bad yeah. that I'm quitting, but it's like, it's only 20 bucks. It's not like everything completely relies on me. So it's, it's more of a community-based approach and it's, it's been very, very, very effective because I've been able to have the opportunity to go on podcasts and things like this. Yeah. yeah. How many shows have you been on so far? Cause you've been on Jocko. Um, yeah, I was on, uh, Jocko. I've been on Andy Stumps a couple of times, been on Mike Ritland's a couple of times. Um, and then I've been, uh, so Mr. Ballin made the uh, Na yeah. Navy SEAL goes rogue in yeah, Iraq. Yeah. And so we put a link to our website God, I there. I need to watch that now. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. It was like total bullshit. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the rogue such, part I'm was. Such, I'm such a pessimist. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like rogue Navy SEAL. I'm like, whatever. You like, know? whatever, man. The, yeah. The, the first thing I thought of was like that, um, you know, that stupid uh, show, The Hurt Locker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the, the, the movie? Yeah, that was the okay. first thing I thought of was like, you know how like the, the EOD guy goes out in Baghdad with like- Oh, goes rogue. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, fuck yeah. God. Like, <laughs> the EOD guy like went out in Baghdad with this, this yeah. in-9. Like, I'm yeah, going to yeah. jump the wire and go out and hunt the fucking people. Like, what? Yeah, Shut yeah, up. yeah. Like, it never happens. That's the first right, right, time. Right. Like, when I, when, I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, just like the uh, EOD guy, the Hurt Locker. You're right. Yeah, yeah. being a veteran yeah, ruins pull up a Pull up a, a, a wiring harness and for, you just like, yank it. Yeah, you just, just yank, yank it. it all up. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, what kind of fictional fairy tale bullshit are you talking oh, like, But now yeah. I got, now I like actually have to give it a, a give it a, like a legit watch because like I yeah. actually really like his his content. Mm -hmm. I was just turned on to it not too long ago, and that's when I was texting Cody back and forth. I was like, hey man, do you know this guy's like, yeah, man, I went to Buds with that guy. It's like, yeah. it's fucking awesome. Yeah, really. Such a cool, small world. And he's such a good dude too, like uh, John. So he yeah. he was so he he was in Iraq. I'm sorry, not Iraq. He was in Afghanistan as well. Um, and he, he's told this story publicly as well. So um, one of the one of the cool things about him is he, he was in, he was in a he was in a fight uh, in Afghanistan, and he literally got hit in the chest with a grenade. A Taliban guy threw a grenade, um, hit him in the chest, and so then it dropped on the ground in front of him, and everybody scattered. And so he and the grenade went off, and so he got like peppered in the butt. With uh, with a bunch of frag, no, nobody died, so it was fine. Right. But yeah, so like 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 legit dude. So it's, you, you think like oh you know YouTuber just some dude out there, but it's like no man, like this is is the he's is the real deal, dude. man. He's the yeah, real deal. He's yeah. a legit dude. There's a few and of a good guys. person too. A good person. That's another thing too, because like sometimes guys will get famous or they'll get you know successful or whatever, and then everyone behind their back is like, dude, that guy's such a piece of crap. Like he got lucky. Oh my god. You know, and but it's that, like, but, but he's like, a, he's a good person. He that's deserves like it. Everybody. I watched this, uh, um, SF meme page posted something the other day. It's like, nobody hates veteran success. Like other veterans. <laughs> dude. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, oh dude. I can't imagine the, the hate that you've got. Oh, I can't even yes. imagine. So, oh yeah. I love it though. Yeah. Like, you're just like, like, you're dude, like, yes, I, this is all true. I, oh, I love it. It's man. all true. I like, I like dude, I, I fucking like, drink it up in the yeah. mornings. I'm like, whatever. It's like, at the, at the end of the day, and I, I had this really good piece of advice a long time ago by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Mm -hmm. and love his, love his book. Yeah, it's like. awesome. Yeah. And he was on the podcast and he was oh, talking. Awesome. He's like, he's like, hey man, just a little something for you. He's like, the bigger you get, he's like 10% of everybody that knows of you or the company is always going to fucking hate you. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, just think about like that 10% voice and all these people are going to fucking hate you and they're all going to like throw mud at you. They're all going to talk shit. They're all going to mm -hmm. do this like 10%. And so he's like, the louder that gets, the bigger the audience is that you actually have. Yeah. And I was true. like, 
oh, okay. So then I, I take it honestly as, as, as like it's a, a compliment. Form of, in a yeah, way. It's, a, it's like a compliment. So yeah, like, yeah. And, and people, you know that people, they're jealous and they're haters. Yeah, like that's, well, that's people, what it people, is. Like I win. Like I've told this to people yeah, so like, like all won, the time. Dude. I'm like, dude, I won. Like <laughs> my, my, I, I got a, I got a fucking awesome company. Like, yeah. you know, we have 900 people at work here. Wow, that's so We're cool. profitable. Like, yeah. Yeah, nobody's going to be taken away from me, man. Like I got yeah. two grad kids. I got a great wife. I like, I, Takes me twelve minutes to get the office every day. Oh, that's like, great, I win. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I win, man. Like I don't. <laughs> I don't. It's like, like who cares? It's like I, dude. I donated three and a half million dollars last year to veteran nonprofits. Oh, dude, that's awesome. I win, motherfucker. Exactly. It's like, exactly. It's like it's fun for me in the context of like I have the largest coffee subscription in America, the that's, largest that's in America. Or like, and it's not me time to be to braggadocious. I'm just saying, go like, for it, man. dude. I, I bump in and I talk to so many different vets and it's like literally dude, 99 out of a hundred interactions I've had in 10 years, mm-hmm. 99. I've had one negative interaction. A guy came up to me and he's a pilot mm-hmm. for Southwest airlines in the <laughs> Dallas airport. Okay. He's like, I disagree with what you said in this one thing. And I was like, well, tell me what, what like, tell me what it is that you disagree with. Mm-hmm. And he was like, this is what I disagree with. And I was like, okay, yeah, cool, man. Like, yeah. Hey, bro. Like, where where where'd you serve? You're a Navy pilot. He's like, yeah, I was a Navy pilot. I was like, cool. Fist bump. Well, that's awesome, man. Like, yeah, that's hey, what's up. That's what's up. Like, I'm glad that you like. I'm glad that we live in a country where we can have an open disagreement about things and we can have a discourse. But at the end of the day, man, I got, you know, I did what I felt was right, mm-hmm. and these were my fucking. These are my values, and this is what I do. And he's like, well, okay, I, okay, I, I actually kind of. Uh, I think that's cool. I was like, all right, great. But he's like, <laughs> I've, great. I've never had this, this like over, I've never had one person like come face up to, to me face, yeah. and face to face, but I do meet 99 out of a hundred guys. I met three people in Bozeman, Montana. The last time I was there mm-hmm. in my airport that said, I had a guy come up to me and go, you saved my fucking life. Oh dude, that's he's awesome. Like, wow. You guys doing what you do and like, a huge reason, like the only reason I do this. Is so other vets know, like, listen, dude, if, if, if my knuckle dragging ass can start a company in my garage mm-hmm. that eventually in nine years goes from my garage to the New York stock exchange where I hire 900 veterans or 900 people with 50% hiring rate for veterans, or I can give three and a half million dollars a year back to vets. That's the reason I lead by example. Like don't yeah, listen to yeah. what I fucking say. I'm fairly incompetent at, most everything actually, yeah, but I hear that. I, I'm decent. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I like, I'm decent at like building a company and building a good culture of people. And it's like, yeah. I give a ton of shit back and I love doing it. It's awesome. Like you can't take any of this stuff with us. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. it's easier to get what it was a camel through an eye of a needle than it is a rich man to get into heaven. That's a, or something, a, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Some something like that variant yeah. of that. Yeah. So it's like, we got a very finite amount of time here. The direct impact that we make across the board was like having great conversations like this, Mm -hmm. like seeing like, you've had this like wildly interesting life. Like Mm -hmm. I've never been shot. Mm -hmm. Fuck. What's it like? Like I've read and heard and I've like heard thousands of stories and I've read lots of stories about, you know, the, the world war two vets that got, you know, shot in whether that's like Iwo Jima or Peleliu or fucking Normandy or France it's always the 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 same description. It feels like it's like it's like getting hit with a baseball bat, mm-hmm. like where you know you either 
bones are breaking or they're not breaking. You look down and you're, it, it's a very similar description, but yeah, I don't know if too many people have been shot and then they have to get up and move. And then the psychological circumstance of not having the big green machine behind you, you're, the, mm-hmm. the logistics of getting yourself from point A to point B with the Iraqi army and then out and then back home, all the while, like, you used to have the big machine. Yeah. Now you don't have it. You got nothing. You got nothing, man. Mm-hmm. Like, like you hanging it out there, like, I, I kept thinking about this while you were talking. It was like, your fucking brain would be interesting, you know, it, it, not not like a psycho. You know, not like in a psycho way where I want to like chop your brain. Look at it. I'm like, no, under a microscope, like when yeah. you think about myelination and the development of your experiences and what that yeah. culminates into, what you have in your head is so interesting because there's fractional, like, like we're talking about millionths of the population that have ever experienced anything of what you've experienced, whether mm. that's like being raised in America, joining a, you know, spec ups unit, ups. you know, but now puts you into a very unique category of people that have been shot that have also had to move off the X. And then on top of that, the fact that you're like logistically supporting yourself and you had the additional layer of the psychological enhancement of that fucking event of knowing no one's going to help you. Mm-hmm. You got to help yourself. Yeah. Like whatever you got going on in there, like it, like whatever's cooking around in that fucking gray matter of yours is pretty damn interesting because it, whatever's making you up, whatever's making that tick, I don't know. It'd be you should probably try to fucking put a study behind that. Like that's that's what people need to fund. Like what's what's going on in that head? To figure out his, how you can weird like head. put that out. Yeah, and and I mean to be fair, like other guys that are struggling, like you know our peer group of of. Uh, you know, the, the GWAT veteran, like they're struggling. They're struggling with substance abuse yeah. and psychological abuse or mm-hmm. psychological issues and substance abuse and suicide. And it's sad. Like, and it, de- it does depress me. Like it does. It really affects me more than anything else in the war that I ever have ever had to deal with is the guys that are struggling alone that they need help. Like, and that's why we, that's literally why I do this. Yeah. And I, I, I've, I've wondered that as well. Um, why, why the veteran suicide rate in particular is so high because in the reality, in, in reality, when you look at it, it's not necessarily, it's not like combat veterans who mm-hmm. are committing suicide at, at high rates. It's veterans. It's people veterans. who are just in the military. Yeah. And so you realize, I, th- I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with loss of community and, and whatnot. And that's a you know whole other discussion to have that I, I, I'm not an expert on, but yeah, just, um, just like a, maybe a month, month and a half ago. Uh, yeah, I got word buddy of mine that had been the teams with killed himself, you know? And I was like, man, like, and then like a two months or a couple months before that, another guy who I wasn't like directly like friends with, but we were on the same, we're on the same team. Um, he was a different platoon, but one of the platoon leaders, yeah, an officer, he just killed himself in front of his family. You know, and you're going. No, that's the worst. Yeah, and you're going like, like what, like what is that? What's that? What's that? That's going on. And for me, like I was, you know, when I when I was going through my dark phase. I mean, the suicidal ideation like went through my head. Um, luckily, um, I, I never was in a position where I was like actually really, really considering it. But like, just the thought, the thought went through my head because like when you're when you're at the bottom and you're and you can't, you feel like you, like everything in life is failing and you're alone and you're isolated and it's just, yeah, it, it's rough. So for me, like when I was on, I was on uh, Andy, Andy Stump's podcast uh, back in March 
And uh, that's when I, that was, that's when I first opened up about, for example, like the like the obesity thing. Like mm-hmm. I, I gained a hundred pounds, dude, and I was so ashamed of that. Like, and I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to tell anybody because I was so ashamed. And um, but I thought I was like, no, dude. Like, there's guys out there who are dealing with the same thing. Guys are, you know, I was dealing with addiction. I was I was literally addicted yeah. to bread and stuff. So like, I had to go through like Russell Brand's. I read Russell Brand's book about addiction. Really? And it, yeah, and that's what that's what that's what did it. It's basically the twelve steps, yeah. uh, AA twelve steps, but Russell Brand's version. So it's it's much more uh, digestible and, and hilarious. It's, but it's man, it works. It's religious based. It's more like uh, yeah. It's yeah. he he goes through the actual twelve steps and shows you what the what the actual twelve steps right. are. But then he puts his own twist on it. So yeah. like number one is like, you know, whatever the first step is like, you know, do you realize that you have a problem and that your creator is the only one who can help you or something or whatever, whatever, whatever the first yeah. step is, but like Russell Brand's version, he's like, yeah. So I, the way I say it is, are you a bit fucked? Number one, you know, <laughs> like, and that's why it's, and then like point number two, do you want to be unfucked? You know? And so like, it's, it's, it's just fantastic. I, I read the, or I listened to the, the audio version of it and yeah, it's fascinating yeah. stuff. So it's like anytime, anytime, any of the, I hope that any of the struggles that I've been through, mm-hmm any of the weird stuff that I've, I've gone through other guys, um, you know, like, actually like, like, like Andy Stump says, is like, I've done more than some less than others. And so those other guys have been through way worse stuff. And it's like, I hope that guys can see like, Hey man, if you, if you are that dude, that's a hundred pounds overweight, like wanting to off yourself and you're, and you're hating life. It's like, dude, that's not you, man. And you can, you can get help and just don't give up. That's the thing. Like, don't give up. What ended up helping me the most was, um, I don't know if we said uh, we talked about this on air before we were talking, but basically, yeah, I went and sat for a month yeah. in uh, in Florida, and I just stared at the ocean, man. And it and it uh, it really helped me get my mind my mind right because you got to get out of that environment. And that's, I know there's a lot of really good veterans groups out there that do like retreats and things for yeah. veterans. And I'm like, dude, go to one of those because that's basically what I did without realizing. I basically did my own veteran mm-hmm. retreat, and I like I went and just got alone and got out of the got out of the the sort of the the vicious cycle that I was in. And so that's what you have to do. You have to get out of that vicious cycle so you can see clearly when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to, you got, the, you got those blinders on, you can't see clearly step out of it. And then you can well, see just, yourself better. I, I think guys have to just like, the, the thing that I don't understand is especially guys in our community. I, I don't understand why they're so committed to going through these selection processes where quitting is not an option. Yeah. And now quitting becomes an option all of a sudden. I'm yeah. Like, you're Yo, quitting. Yeah. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. Because to be fair, we would like not only like like psychologically humiliate people that were quitters. Like this is like this was so toxic. You didn't want to be near other people that oh, were quitters. Yeah. Like you couldn't yep. be around them. Period. Yep. yep. And so for for me, I look at the peer group and I go, "Why are you now quitting?" Like you've gone through all the selection, yeah. you've done everything. And now you decide that this is an option for you to quit versus saying, just go try a hundred different things. Who cares? Like go to Mexico and do ayahuasca, go to fucking Panama and do a bunch of cocaine. I don't fucking care, mm-hmm. but try it all. Like read the Bible, read the Quran, like, like, like do whatever it is that you need. Anything to do. other than anything other than like, yourself. yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there's so many different people that, that, that you're going to provide like a direct value in their lives. Mm-hmm. Regardless. It's mm-hmm. like you could think of yourself as the biggest pilot of human shit ever, mm-hmm. but you can still create value in other people's lives. It's like mm-hmm. you can go and volunteer yeah. every day and yeah. just try to plug in and create value with other people. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my buddy, Clint Trial, 
quite a bit about this. He's a bilateral amputee. He's a former force recon guy that worked at the, the office for a while. And, um, you know, if that guy's upbeat, you know, he'll call me like, hey, man, how you doing? I'm like, fuck you. Why are you calling me and asking me how, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, how yeah. I'm doing? Like, how are you doing, man? Like, like, but that's the guy that, you know, if he's calling me, asking me what, how I'm doing, I need to be calling 10, 15, 20 guys a week going, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And for us to just kind of uh, give up, like it kind of goes back to that whole thing of like, well, you know, the hate or whatever that, like, yeah, man, bring it on. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care. I'm not, I'm not some fucking, you know, weak quitter that's going to be like, give up. I'll triple, quadruple down. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 Because you know why? Because man, I got to lead by example. Mm-hmm. Like if I quit now, I have literally betrayed every piece of my fucking DNA and everything that I've built around my entire life from the time that I could comprehend the English language until today. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen. Exactly. So it's like, we can't do it to our peer group. It's like, if you don't have the fucking strength, if you don't have the wherewithal, find it mm-hmm. from other people and tr- like, just get the job done. And yeah. that's why like, I hear it, man. I hear it and it pisses me off. Like I hear guys like, <clears throat> they'll mud suck guys like Goggins. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know Goggins at all. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know him from, from Adam, zero. Mm-hmm. I don't care what he did in the teams. I don't mm. care what he did in the military. He's doing extremely positive things right now. It's like All he's doing for the community yeah. is plugging in and telling people yeah. a message that they need to hear. Mm-hmm. Suck it the fuck up. Harden yeah. up. Yeah. Like do I a thousand pull-ups, agree. whatever it is, like suck it up. Yeah. Suck it up, buttercup. Like, so yeah. I don't care. I don't, I don't know Goggins from Adam. I don't know him, what he did in the teams. I don't care what he did in the teams. You know yeah. what I do? You know what I love? In fact, there's somebody out there it's putting that message in people's ear 365 days a year. Yeah. I was talking with a, um, a, a guy in San Diego, civilian guy, and he, um, it was a, a personal trainer. I was working with him and he, 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 you know, was like, Oh, I saw like, I saw in your paperwork that like, you were a seal. I was like, that's so cool. He's like, did, did you know like Goggins or anything? And I said, I was like, Oh no, I, I've never met, never met Goggins yeah. or anything. And, uh, and he was like, and he just went off and he was like, dude, like, that's so awesome. I love the content that he puts out and on all this other stuff. And I got, like I said, I've never met Goggins either, but I'm like, yeah, dude, like this guy, his, his life is changed. It's like his entire, the way he views the world is, is, is more resilient. It's tougher. Um, and I'm like, that's awesome. Like that's, that's a, that's a positive thing. Cause I, cause I, I've heard, I've, I've seen some of the, the public we, we, stuff. We've all, we've all yeah, heard it. it right? and, but you're like, but, but who cares? But who cares? And exactly. I'm just like a shut it down. Instantly. Exactly. And that's like, it's like, who cares? Like, who look cares? at the, look at the positivity of like, of what you got going on. And that's the thing. And I think, um, I've heard it about everybody, by the way, dude, like, it doesn't no doubt, matter. No you know, doubt. Like every fucking no guy, every vet, uh, especially every soft vet, every vet, mm-hmm. like they all throw fucking mud at everybody else. Like, yeah, I hear it about whether it's like Jocko on one end or Goggins or Andy or me or Matt. Like I heard yeah, it about yeah. everybody. I've heard it. <laughs> I've heard it from guys that <laughs> I was like, like, I've heard this like rumor or whatever, right? It's like Evan was a dirtbag SF guy. I'm like, fucking goddamn right. I was like, I'll be the first <laughs> guy to tell you I was. Like, you know, the thing you're not going to hear me 
or hear from anybody that ever went to combat with me, they'll never fucking hear that I'm a coward. Exactly. You can tell exactly. me, you can say all the other things that you want to fucking say about me. Like I didn't show up on time. I was a fucking asshole. Like you can say all you, you know, the one thing you will not be able to fucking find is a guy that was ever in a gunfight with me that mm -hmm. will call me a coward. You know why? Because it yeah. doesn't fucking exist. And that's There's the only thing that matters. One. And that's the only thing that matters. Yeah, absolutely. Like, personal reputation. You can call me any and all things you want to. Mm -hmm. You'll never be able to call me that. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in my own sort of micro, micro version of, of, uh, you know, obviously you've become very prominent and successful. It's like, for me, it's like, I've had a, like a little bit of that. And it's like, and then yeah, hearing just like the hate sometimes like through, through the network of like guys and you're like, dude, like that's not even true. Like, what, like, what are you talking about? Some stuff's true. Like, you know, like, like, yeah, man, like, you know, there's some stuff's true, but some stuff is just, they just make it up. They just I, make it up. Like, dude, I, like shit makes it like yeah. Mike, Mike Glover and I were talking about this the other day. Um, it's an awesome friend of mine, like Mike and I like, cause Mike, did you guys know each other yeah, from like, I knew him from, from like the CIA? Oh, okay. I put him awesome. through vetting actually. Oh, no kidding. And, uh, That's great. Yeah. So it was like, okay. somebody was telling me, um, they're like, well, Mac didn't go to, he, he didn't, he wasn't a CAG. And I was like, he's never, he's never said that. He's actually he's never said that multiple <laughs> times and corrected the, like not uh, only corrected that, but he's like, yeah. he always puts it out that he did and did that. I'm like, no, he has never done that. Actually, like he has said the exact opposite 150 times yeah like, in the fact that you guys are going like they were having this like tactical argument about like he was in cags or he wasn't in, he wasn't a cag operator so he can't put out tactical advice i'm like that guy was a special forces <laughs> command sergeant major that had been in multiple uh, different units and the fact that you think that now he can't give tactical advice mm -hmm. because he wasn't a CAG operator is so absurd to me that I'm like, those guys do not have like a monopoly on tactics. And I'm like, okay, well. Yeah. Well, I think, I think a lot of it comes from, um, cause I've, I've gotten hate a couple of times from a couple of different guys. And what I realized in hindsight, it was, it was, uh, it was jealousy. It was yeah. guys, it was, it was envy. And it's like jealousy, envy, greed. Those are the three things. Yeah. Right? And then, so know? then I always try to look at that and I try to apply that to myself. Cause like sometimes like even my own, even in my own head, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start thinking negatively about one thing or the other. And 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm just jealous. I'm just envious. That's it. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like, come on. I, and then I catch myself and I'm like, you know what? Dude, get on that yeah, guy. I, I will be the first guy to tell you Jocko is one of the worst people I've ever seen in a wind tunnel. <laughs> What, ro rocks, rocks don't do he well. He tries to grapple the air. It's like a giant I, stone. I, I, but he is <laughs> one of the nicest human beings I've ever been around. And yeah, honestly, yeah. Like, I got one negative thing to say about him. Like, it's it's the the, the he in the wind tunnel. I don't know why he tries to uh, choke the air out, but he does. But he's like a fucking uh, awesome dude. Yeah, and it's like yeah, yeah. every one of these guys, man. Like, I meet him. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, Rob O'Neill gotten like mm -hmm. that. Thing, like you know the guy that's like saying that he killed bin laden or whatever and mm -hmm. like and then he got rolled up for slapping some guy in a hotel last week which i thought was super funny because oh, I, right. like, yeah. I, I i've been tracking once it, again like it. i'm not tracking i just got sent it yeah, like, yeah oh yeah. you know rob o'neill or whatever and everybody's like in this kerfuffle around rob <laughs> this this is what the guy gets for saying this i'm like rob's uh, always been such a fucking nice guy to me and I yeah. don't really care. I don't care who yeah, shot yeah. Bin Laden. Honestly, there's probably 20 dudes on that raid uh -huh. that as they're walking up the stairs, put a fucking bullet in his head because that's yeah. what you do. Yep. So Double tap. just so you know, like don't care. I don't care who the first guy was. I don't care who the last guy was. And I sure as shit don't care who fucking put him in the ocean. Yeah, He's yeah. dead. That's what yeah. I care about. That's like the thumbs up AOK -okay thing that I got going on. Yeah. And uh, 
I just think it's like so funny that people can get so spun up over, well, a great example is like people get all fucking wound up over little nitnoy horseshit, like what tourniquet's the best one, for instance, right? Oh, you, right, guys, guys, like, I've, I've seen me, I've only seen memes. I've seen like memes of, of stuff and I'm like, dude, like, I don't care, man. Uh, he's like, whatever you got, use it, man. Hey, you got a belt? Yeah. You got a belt and a stick? Yeah. You, you, yeah. you got a cravat and a stick? You got this, you got that. Like, hey man, does it do the thing that you're asking it to do? Well, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Right, it's like, it's like yeah. firearms. I told mm -hmm. people this the other day, I was like, hey man, I don't care how the shovel is made or the manufacturer, does it dig dirt? That's basically right, the way right. that I look at guns. I got mm -hmm. ones that, that I like shooting and they're a lot of fun, but at the end of the day when I was working, I was like, here's your shovel, go to work. I wasn't right. going, well, I gotta take a couple pounds off that trigger because this is what I gotta do to fucking- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like trick it out, yeah. I gotta trick just, out my, my shovel. Yeah, exactly. And so just yeah, just take what, take whatever you got. Um, I was thinking one, one interesting um, thought I had about- um, about uh, guys and you know in, in PTSD well not, not PTSD but like the suicide thing I think I think one of the most important things is guys need to find find a purpose yeah. whether it's building a company a family whatever it's it's all about finding a purpose and the reason I bring that up is so my, my interpreter who was killed uh, you know a few months ago um, in the years before that when I'd been working with him and even even up until like you know days before I died he would always say it was like uh, thank you thank you they say tra means um, Direct translation is teacher. Thank you. Right. But that's how they say, sir. It's like, thank you. Thank you for, for being here and helping us. Thank you. You're doing a lot of good stuff. And, uh, and he would say, and he would always say, we really need you. We really need you. And I would always tell him, I was like, dude, I need you just as much as you need me. And he didn't understand what I meant by that. But what I meant was like, dude, like you guys are my purpose. I love you guys and I'm here mm -hmm. to help you. And I'm pouring my heart and soul into you. And so in my darkest times, um, a lot of times that was what kept me going was I knew, Hey, but there's someone who's depending on me. There's someone who needs me. And so I had a purpose. I had, I had a reason to, to keep going. So I think, I think a lot of guys, if they're, if they're struggling with stuff, find that purpose and you got to humble yourself. You got to, you got to walk into some place and be like, Hey man, I want to volunteer ego, or whatever. Like, Do the ego. Yeah. They, they, like I always tell people yeah. like business, I've, I've, I've told them this, like, you know, you have to sacrifice your ego in the altar of business, mm -hmm. but you really have to sacrifice your ego in the altar of life. Every it's, day. It's actually yeah. like, that it's 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 much bigger than that you know my kids to your point it's like purpose it's like you know i have the veteran community i have the company i have my family i have my kids like i've got so many layers of purpose mm -hmm. where it's not an option and it doesn't even sneak into my psyche and more importantly like i build redundant layers of firewalls to make sure that it doesn't even sneak into my psyche from the from the negativity that mm -hmm. I've, I've been you know uh, exposed to in my past which is like i don't have substance abuse issues and i make sure i don't fucking do it right yeah so, yeah yeah you know i got my appendix taken out a couple of years ago mm -hmm. and i just sucked up is like tylenol three man yeah like, yeah know, yeah like, like there there's <laughs> like, nothing don't give me anything there's man. nothing like yeah. you know it's yeah. like hey I, I will i will fucking you know put a piece of leather in my mouth and i'll grunt through it like i stopped drinking uh just about a year ago awesome. when one of my really close friends killed himself because of that and yeah. it's like i'm not going to allow any thing to i it, it's de definitively I'm, i will not allow a poison or something toxic to spill in and quite possibly interrupt what I'm trying to achieve specifically when it's related to purpose. And the other thing is I'm not a wealth driven person. I don't mm -hmm. really like, I'm not materialistically driven. So mm -hmm. 
I'm a capitalist in the sense of like, I like building things. I like building. The process of yeah. building yeah. is, like is building. what's fun. Yeah. 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 So like, it doesn't matter to me. So it's like, it's super funny. Guys are like, oh my, you know, oh, whatever it is, the curf- whatever thing that they're spinning up. It's like, man, yeah. I've, I spent most of my life living in a shipping container on a cot. Yeah. Like, yeah. Th- whatever I got right now is like way more than I ever thought that I would have. So yeah. he can't really do a whole lot. Like it's, yeah. it's pretty cool, man. Like, Man, I got this uh, uh, Garmin watch. It's yep. uh, and I got the same Rolex that I bought in Bahrain on my way out of Iraq on my first deployment. Oh, nice, Manama. And, yeah, in Manama. my first deployment in two thousand four, I bought it. <laughs> it was forty five hundred dollars. Oh I still have man, the same Rolex watch that I oh, bought that's, then. That's great. But I'm like, hey man, drive an F one fifty. I still go back and forth. Same house I've had for fucking years. Like it's nothing's changing, dudes. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think if guys guys start chase, chasing, uh, chasing um, the, the sort of the sort of end goal. Everybody thinks that, like the mountaintop is the goal, but it's like no, dude, it's it's it really is about the climb. For me, it's like obviously on a much smaller scale. It's like I'm building this organization, and it's been so much fun from zero dollars to you know millions of dollars, being able to go in and then and 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 then help people with with this money, being able to raise this kind of this this money and stuff. And to your point, the building process is the fun part. For me, I, I find a lot of joy in that building, building an organization, hiring new employees, expanding, being able to do what we do, being able to do what we need to do. Um, I, 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 it's great. Like there's a team, like, like I said, in Mozambique right now, I'm not there. Like this is the first time I've like full on like sent a mission with, without me there. And it's really cool that it's like now we're at the point because that was my goal back in 2016. I was in Thailand. I had the thought for what I do now. I had the, the idea to, right. to, to do this. I didn't know what it was going to be named or what it was going to be called, but I remember seeing just our platoon just being so demoralized. And I knew that we're on the Thai Burma border. We're a three hour helicopter ride away from villages where people are being raped and murdered. And I was like, man, I got to start something so I can hire guys with my background to go in and help these people. And it's like, now it's come full circle where it's like, now there's guys out there in the field and I'm not there. I'm, I'm here. And, uh, it's, it's, it's cool. Cause like talk about purpose, talk about building. That's where, that's where the real joy comes from is making something happen, not giving up and just continuing to work toward it. Yeah, it's awesome. Like great podcast. Uh, where can everybody find you again? Um, yeah, so if people want to check out our organization, uh, strongholdrescue.org. Um, they can go on there if they want to sign up and be, be a donor. And then uh, if people want to check us out on social media, it's at Stronghold Rescue. And then like my personal social media is just at Ephraim Matos. Cool. Thanks, Ephraim. Awesome. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate you.